0: Hello, friends. This is Dave Pasqualone with the Remarkable People Podcast, Season 2, Episode 40, The Jeff Galvin Story. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it out.
1: The Remarkable People Podcast.
0: Listen, do, repeat for life. Jeff, thanks for being here today, brother. How are you?
1: I'm great, David. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak to you on your podcast. This
0: is great. Oh, I am stoked and so excited. For our listeners out there today, we have a very special treat. Jeff is the CEO and founder of American Gene Technologies. He was a student of Harvard. He actually taught and I believe went to MIT, and I don't want to steal his thunder, so he's going to explain his story but I heard a rumor he was teaching classes at a small institution called MIT at 14, which is insane. He's worked for little companies like Apple and you know, didn't they just became the largest company, right? Just about, yeah. yeah. I'm not sure
1: they keep on going back and forth as the largest company in the world. It's
0: yep, amazing. I think just last week they got that. And he has not only a remarkable story of his life, but he has exciting, exciting balance and mix of where technology and science infuse with pharmaceuticals and medicine. And you're going to hear not only a remarkable journey of his life, but a remarkable down the road, something coming very soon, a cure to diseases, cure to illnesses, a cure to a whole bunch of things that plague our world. And Jeff is spearheading this. And he's going to talk about it. So it is an exciting, exciting episode. Quick shout out, our sponsors, remarkable. We thank you guys. If you're listening to the show, we have BTK Innovations today, bodytemperaturekiosk.com. They sell the nation's leading body temperature scanners. In one second, they scan the people. They let them know if they have a fever. They remind them to put on their masks. They can take attendance. And they can do almost anything but fold your laundry. These things are crazy good. They can open and close magnetic door locks. So you can go to bodytemperaturekiosk.com, use promo code BTKCARESDP, and you get 200 bucks off a unit. And they're fantastic all over the country in courthouses and sheriffs, and they're in schools and universities. They're freaking amazing. Also, locally, come to Pensacola. Beaches, wonderful life, chill great people, Pam Heinold Realty. She has been a sponsor since the podcast began. Great woman, great human, great realtor. And the entire community, she's at the top of not only her, Better Homes and Garden Real Estate, but she's at the top of the entire city. So call Pam Heinold if you want a vacation home, a rental. If you just want a place to call home in Pensacola, come down, we'll have dinner together, right? So pamheinel.com, check it out in the show notes and you'll get a link. And at this time, again, we thank you for being here listeners all over the world. Jeff, as deep back as you wanna go, the format of the podcast as you share your story, what you really feel like, you know, I'm proud of this or these are really hard things I had to overcome in my life or this was a super difficult challenge, but here's what we did and here's how we did it. And then at the end of that, we're going to transition to where's Jeff today and where are you going? so we as the listeners can help you. And again, as the listeners, hang on, grab your pen, grab your paper unless you're driving, then just replay this later. And then go ahead, take notes. There'll be links in the show notes for Jeff. You can get a hold of him. you can ask questions. There may be even investment opportunities I personally invest in, in, AGT, great company, bright future, and they're helping the world. And at this time, Jeff take over, man. Nobody wants to hear me. They want to hear you. So Jeff, please share your remarkable story, my friend. Well, I don't know. I mean, you sounded pretty good. I
1: bet a lot of people do tune in because of you. I hope I can live up to the introduction you gave me and I really appreciate being here today. Yeah, I was thinking a little bit about what sort of arc can I draw through my life that might be interesting to your listeners. And if you don't mind, I will go back a bit and talk about kind of my origin story. And then I think the main thing that I would love to detail a little bit more would be my journey through American Gene Technologies, which has been a fascinating, challenging, and dramatic 12 years. And we're at a point right now where the drama is at its max, and we're looking forward into a future that could go so many different directions. And so I would love to kind of bring you into my world a little bit from that perspective. And see if you can tease out some interesting things, observations for yourself or for your listeners and viewers.
0: Oh, 100%, brother. That sounds spot on. And just as the listeners know, what Jeff's saying, this high speed life that he's in right now and the excitement and the changes, we were literally speaking. We met through a mutual friend, Gene Valentino from season one, episode four. Mm -hmm. And Jeff and I are on a call and we're talking and he's telling me this exciting news, which I'm not going to steal your thunder. (laughs) And then the next two days later and like two o'clock, I get this phone call. It happened. Super exciting, super wonderful. But Jeff's going to bring you back from where he starts, his journey, and then we'll get there to today. And if you were oh. excited about just the world changing for the better, we live in such a stressful time right now, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, we got COVID, we got bias, we got, you know, world governments and upheaval, but this is a light. I mean, you got God as our light and then we're here to help each other with light. And Jeff's bringing the light, man. He's helping people. I'm excited, especially the approach he takes with this technological background. It's pretty crazy exciting. So, Jeff, I'm going to shut up and you start talking, buddy. Cool. Okay.
1: I was born in urban Boston, a town called Brookline, lower middle class family, well educated. When I was born, my dad was at MIT and my mom was at Harvard. And so they were quite substantial achievers in terms of their ability to do well in school and get into good schools and to gather a lot of important skills and background that helped them to start to set down their stake and enjoy the American dream, you know, where opportunity was there for everyone. And that was highly characteristic of the 50s and the early 60s. So I was born in 1958. I'm an old, old guy. (laughs) I've seen a lot now. A friend of mine always says, old is whatever age you are plus 15. That's what looks old to you. And I think it's true. <laughs> like now, folks that are like 75, yeah, okay, that's old. But sixties not old. So I'm in my early 60s. Sixties is
0: the new 50, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, now, of course, whatever you are is the new 30, right? Yep. You always feel that way. You're as young as you feel. And I got to say that I'm working so hard. I don't know that I could have done any more in my 30s than I'm doing right now. So, you know, maybe it is, I'm not going out on weekends and playing football anymore. I don't know if I could take the physical pounding, but what's amazing to me is that all the exercise that I do for my mind every day, just solving puzzles is really keeping me sharp in a way that I don't really remember being this sharp, even when I was younger. This job is 24 seven. It is just full of puzzles that need to be solved every single day. It has verified to me that the brain is the strongest muscle in the body, if you care to make it that way. And I'm just a absolute sponge for information. And I am just the CPU is going all night long. I'm dreaming about the work that I'm doing at American Gene Technologies. And before people think, oh, what a weirdo, I should just say that the reason that it's this way is that I just have this incredible passion and love for what we're doing. I'm pursuing a vision that I had. 12 years ago when I met somebody at uh, National Institutes of Health who alerted me to a new technology in drug development that was not popular, that was not having very much momentum. As a matter of fact, it had recently had some problems and it was kind of on the downslide. But when he explained this stuff to me with my background, I was just so prepared to understand where this could go that just an overwhelming epiphany came over me about the future of drug development. And how much better it was going to be for patients and society and for the human race. And, you know, as I tell you my backstory, maybe you'll understand why the human race is so important to me.
0: But yeah, absolutely. Before you get to where you're at now, let's go back to Brookline when you're a kid. Sure. So I don't have a lot of memories
1: from Brookline, maybe zero. As a matter of fact, my dad and my mom were still in school, and my grandmother brought me up and she lived to age 99. And one of her final memories was of me. Every time I'd see her as she was getting a little bit of dementia or whatever, but she never forgot bringing me up. You know, it was such a memorable experience walking up and down a five story walk up, no elevators, with my carriage in one hand and me in the other. And this was back in the days before they had these super light foldable things. That was some work for her. And going down, she used to say that she'd take me shopping and she had to keep me right in the center of the aisles because. My hands were out the entire time trying to grab things from the
0: shelves.
1: (laughs) So I was a handful, and my parents have all sorts of stories of me getting into trouble. It's kind of miraculous that I lived to be a teenager because back in those days, we were all free-range children, and if you were lucky, your free-range child would survive, and if you weren't so lucky, they wouldn't, and social services wouldn't take them away from you no matter what. So I don't think my parents were neglectful, but I think it was the norm at the time that when the kids were big enough, you just let them out the door and they went and played in the neighborhood and you didn't know what was going on. Fortunately, nothing really bad happened to me, but started in Brookline. But my first real conscious memories are in a small suburb, lower middle class suburb of Boston called Bedford and little three bedroom house, teeny by comparison to some of the places that I've lived in since then, but typical of the 50s lifestyle, a circle that kept us sort of off of the main street and a lot of kids around. Everybody was having at least two kids. And so it was just out playing all the time and a lot of interesting experiences and that I won't detail. But around four, between my age four and five, my father was graduated from MIT and he started working at Lincoln Labs, which is a government contractor, or government facility that does all sorts of top secret, high tech work. And he never told me about any of the details of what he was doing, but I hung around all that equipment all the time. And I used to love to play with all this electrical engineering stuff. And so I think that's sort of where I started my affair with technology. He had a workbench at home with an oscilloscope, an audio oscillator. He had all the equipment for soldering wires and flip-flops and all sorts of stuff around. And I just got really comfortable with that stuff. And so technology was a bit of a natural for me. His boss had a beautiful piece of land in a neighborhood called Five Fields in Lexington. And I didn't realize at the time how unusual this opportunity was. But it turned out it was an experimental community that had been designed by the Bauhaus in Germany, Gropius. And he had decided that there were ways to shape suburban communities so that they were these idealistic places to raise families. And I think he got it just about 100%. It was definitely an A plus. So we had about 60 families around a giant common land and all the kids would come out for every season of every sport. And we just all play together on that. And there was a community pool. There was a community pond that would freeze over during the winter. We'd play hockey on that. I mean, it was really a place where a village could raise a kid. And we just had such amazing families in there. They were all on that trajectory, you know, sort of middle class to upper middle class. And it was a highly educated, very liberal environment, very cooperative, supportive. Everybody knew everybody. A safe place to grow up and experiment in life. You know, I still got into trouble yeah <laughs> you know, it's, it's not especially when you're not being really closely supervised, and around all those kids you're going to get into a little bit of trouble, but nothing that sort of ended up detouring my life in a negative way, so Lexington, now you know
0: yeah. I'm
1: from Milford Mass
0: so no Lexington kidding.
1: oh, absolutely, yeah. okay, so you know what that area is like, right? yep, you know? and we
0: have listeners from sixty three countries, so just to describe Lexington to you, Jeff is going to tell you, but where I grew up was about forty five minutes outside Boston. Nice little place, but more rougher. What Jeff's saying is they did such a beautiful job with Lexington. I think it's the only or one of the only still dry counties in the United States. Did you know that? There's I no think up- the blue
1: county, but maybe not dry because I know that you could buy liquor there. But I don't know whether you know what the story is with the restaurants
0: either. Yeah, yeah, there's some many- you have to
1: bring your own alcohol to restaurants or something. I'm not sure what the story is, but I don't remember that being a big deal. But I do remember that strictly on Sunday. There was nothing. No stores yep. were open, no alcohol, no nothing. Yeah, so there was that little bit of influence there. But what was really unique about Lexington, it's the birthplace of the nation, the start of the American Revolution. The shot heard around the world was on the Lexington green. The Lexington Minuteman statue is this iconic thing that sort of represented our town and also our spirit. But it was an amazing, amazing place to grow up because it wasn't just our neighborhood that was that way. The entire town was all of the professionals and professors from the entire Boston area, high-tech people. I mean, it was an amazing confluence of the best of the best around that time. And it was reflected in the educational system. Even today, if you go ahead and you look up Lexington High School, it's like beating out all the private schools in the nation. And it's a public school. You know, it just operates off of property taxes and property is expensive in Lexington. It's like Silicon Valley prices or you know, whatever. Yeah. It's not cheap to live there.
0: I was just up there three weeks ago and my uncle lives in Arlington right next door. Yeah. And he was telling me what his house got appraised at. And I was like, whoa. I'm like, you can come to Pensacola and live at Portofino and the 18th story beach and still have money in the bank. Yeah. Yeah. The Boston
1: area has been so successful, so prolific when it's come to so many different industries. Remember, that the mini computer industry originated in the Route 128 area. They have an incredible downtown banking. They have venture capital. MIT is spinning out start technology startups like there's no tomorrow. I grew up when the area behind MIT was a slum. Now it's like some of the most expensive property on the planet. It's an amazing area. You just got so much economic activity and so much brain power From all of the really great public schools around that area. And then you have all these good and great colleges. And so it's got all the precipitance of what you need to build a good life for everybody. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this later, but I always think that the best thing about humans is that we can collaborate to lift all of us up together. I think it is our ability to communicate and work in groups that has raised us above all the other animals on the planet. It's the reason we're not looking over our shoulder at bigger animals that could eat us because we were born in the middle of the food chain, not at the top. But nobody would deny that we have collaborated in a way where humans rule this planet. And I think that really comes from the ability to talk to one another and to mix all of our gut instincts together and also our reasoning together in order to do things that lift up All of us together. And my current career is very much that way. What I'm doing at AGT, I'm very motivated by that. And that's all part of the calculus that I have that makes me such a lover of what I'm doing. But let's proceed on a little bit. So, Lexington High School, amazing place, but even the junior high schools are great. And turns out one day I discovered there's what's called a teletype terminal in the basement that's been put into the basement of our junior high school, Muzzy Junior High School on uh, Mass Ave in Lexington. So what is this? It's a terminal that goes to a mini computer that's shared by a company called Bolt, Brannick & Newman. They might have put it in our school as a tax write-off or as something you know to help enhance education there. They just thought maybe it'll get used. Well, it got used. I talked my science teacher into giving me an independent study to learn to program. And I went down there and I learned an obscure language called Logo. But what I learned about computers is basically put the recipe in once and it'll execute it tirelessly over and over and over again without error. You give it the instructions right, it can just do it and just add electricity and it does all the work for adding numbers, formatting things, interacting with you, all that stuff.
0: And forgive me, did you say logo, L-O-G-O? L-O-G-O was the Yeah, had the little triangle. And it would, you can move in and hit parameters and different points and you could even uh, make a graph.
1: That wasn't actually... So this language was almost like basic. It was a, really a command line language and if-then statements and adding numbers and stuff like that. I don't remember anything because there was zero graphics back when I started in computers. It was all just teletypes that were capable of typing characters. And if you were really clever, you could draw something with those characters. But yeah, that was it. it. Yeah.
0: That was yeah. it. Just my generation, one more generation ahead, it turned into a graphical program. You can make little video games with it. I remember using that in school. They call it Logo Writer at that point.
1: That very much could have been it because it was a language that was actually oriented towards, I didn't realize this at the time, but controlling robotics. So it had a lot of stuff about positioning and movement and stuff in it. It was probably like 12 or 13 years old when I learned Logo. I just fell in love with computers because what I saw there was essentially, a machine that was going to relieve us of all the most rote, boring activities in the world, adding numbers and formatting stuff and remembering stuff for us, right? It could store things. It could do calculations. It could move things around. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to have to use an adding machine or add by hand anymore. So I was fascinated with computers for that reason, but I really just fell in love with it when I started wandering around to MIT. Because my dad had graduated from there. We'd go to open houses all the time. So I felt comfortable on campus. I used to walk into your uncle's town from where I was. It would take me about two hours to walk all the way across Lexington to Arlington, where I could take the bus down to Harvard Square, get on the T, get off of Kendall Square, and walk into the MIT campus and just look for resources to play with, right? It was this incredibly open place where it was just really welcoming to anybody and unbelievable facilities where that one terminal that I had went to a computer that was probably shared by 20 people. They would have the same kind of computers in individual labs for like one student there would have gotten a donation of a computer from Digital Equipment Corporation and you have a whole PDP-10 or PDP-8 or PDP-11 to play with. And when he wasn't using, he was like, yeah, here, you can have it. Cut me a key to his lab. And it was just amazing. But what I found down there was robotics and sensor technology. And then my vision for computers just expanded way beyond the numbers and letters. I was like, of course, eventually they'll sense everything and they will go ahead and manipulate anything, robotics, right? And it'll do everything for us, even in the physical world. It'll build all our stuff. It'll drive our cars. It'll fly our planes. they will be like robot concierges or whatever. I mean, I could see the future of that technology. And I really loved what it did for people, right? I wasn't thinking, oh, this could be a moneymaker. No, I was just thinking, this is incredibly useful. This is going to lift up people. And I think coming from the environment that I came from and from parents that were very sensitive to the idea that not everybody had it as good as us, I had a lot of empathy and a lot of concern for people throughout the entire spectrum. So I did tend to look at things in the big picture in terms of how it lifted all of society. I just became an evangelist for computers. So wandering around MIT at age 13 or 14 at that point, probably, I bump into some students that have this great idea. They're going to use all these facilities on weekends. None of the classrooms are being used. None of the sort of resources are being used. And What they do is they're going to have this thing called the high school studies program. They're going to invite any motivated high school student to come in and take classes from college kids on the weekends. So I run into them and they're like, recognize me immediately. I wasn't just 14. I was small for 14. So they knew I wasn't, I didn't go there. (laughs) They were like, Hey, would you like to take class? And I was like, sure. What do you got in computers? They're like, nothing. I mean, if you can believe that at MIT, no, it's like English, social sciences, math, a lot of stuff, but no computer science at the time.
0: Yeah, back then it was more engineering, correct? Engineering, That was the big right. main thing.
1: Electrical engineering was the thing, yeah. And that's when my father graduated and he has a master's in EE from MIT. So I just said to him, well, how about if I taught a computer science class? And they looked a little puzzled and he said, well, if you can show us a syllabus, it looks interesting, yeah, why not? So, I had to look up what a syllabus was, but it's basically an outline of the class. And so I wrote down an outline of how I would teach basic. At that point, I had learned a couple of different programming languages and I thought, okay, I can teach the basic language and programming skills to high school students on the weekend. They looked at it. They said, sure, here's a classroom. It had about 40 seats in it. I actually filled 30 of them. It wasn't just high school students, a bunch of college students came to it also because there wasn't that much in the curriculum. And there were people that were curious about computers that came from MIT and Wellesley would sit in on my class. So so at at age 14, I think I turned 15 while I was teaching. I was teaching a computer science class at MIT. They gave me time on a mainframe computer called Matrix. And it had a punch card interface and it also had a terminal interface. And I taught people how to program in basic. So much fun. There was more to it than just teaching them a skill. It was sort of passing on my love for this technology and my belief in the future of this technology, and that was really the start of being a technologist for me, because that's what a technologist does, is just sort of sees where this is going and engages the population with where it's going, not just where it is today, but where it's going and tries to attract them into it and use it for their own
0: benefit. So, yeah, and as the listeners right now, Jeff, I'm excited listening to you because I already know more of your story and where this is going. But if you're not interested in math and science and computers, hang tight because Jeff's going to connect the dots. And as we progress in this episode, you're going to see how it hits medical science and research. And that love for technology is what's going to bridge a gap that Jeff and his team was able to achieve that nobody else to date has. So hang tight. And also, Jeff, do me one favor, a little side note. Describe sure. a punch card. Most kids don't know what a rotary phone is. We have listeners from, like I said, 62 plus countries. Yeah. They're from all different backgrounds, all different demographics. But most people don't even know what a punch card is. So, oh, describe to them so right. just You're quickly right. what a punch right. card is.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Back in the old days of computers, the way that you would communicate with a computer is it it had a little flat card that looked like an antiquated voting card from Florida or whatever. It was a flat piece of paper where you could punch through in different areas to indicate letters and numbers. That was basically it. So every row, like if you imagine that it was bigger than a three by five card, maybe it was like three and a half by seven inches. And they had these typewriters where you would type and it would punch the the equivalent letter codes into those punch cards. And you would put one command on each punch card. You'd have to keep them in exact order. And then you would deliver them in a box to a reader that would read it into the computer. And that's how you would communicate your software with the computer. So, in other words, instead of talking to your cell phone, Instead of typing into a terminal, some people remember typing to computers on the command line, like the C prompt. No, you had to go through one more step. You had to type into something that would put it on a flat piece of paper that could be read later by the computer and transferred into memory and then executed. And we had another thing called paper tape, which I'm sure nobody has ever heard of either. (laughs) Paper tape was a huge modernization now of the punch card. Because the punch card had a limited number of characters across it, right? It was seven inches wide. You know, maybe you could get a hundred characters or something like that on one punch card. Well, paper tape was a roll of blank paper. It was about an inch wide. And each row on that could be one character. They came up with something called ASCII formatting, and they could code a number onto that. And then you could just put as much stuff as you wanted on a roll of paper and read it all in at once. And you didn't have to keep all the punch cards in order because the paper tape was naturally in order. And that was more common in many computers. Anyway, man, thank goodness none of your listeners or very few of your listeners had to go through that. I mean, I remember going, my mom was big in software and she worked at a company called Philip Hankins Incorporated. I'm sure it doesn't exist anymore, but they used to do programming and she used to program for them on mainframes. And I used to go down with her when she'd work and play on the punch card machines, like typing my name into them and coding it on a punch card. And these things were unbelievable. They looked like mail sorting machines. They were
0: huge. Computers the size of buildings and boxes for one simple program. It's yeah. crazy. It was I just wanted to explain that. I'll try to even find a picture and I'll put in the show notes of what an old-fashioned punch card looks like. Because yeah. if you haven't seen it, if nothing else, it's humorous to see. We're talking live, different states, real time crystal clear sound and video. And back then, two plus two took like eight hours, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's all still just numbers. That's the amazing thing, right? Everything we're doing is just zeros and ones. And it's being reinterpreted, you know, on both sides. And that's how we're able to have this conversation and record this video and display the video. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, so if you were in that place, right, if you would grown up with that stuff, you could develop from seeing the progression of it. And even from like age seven, where I was playing with punch cards to where I learned to program on that logo computer, you could see a trajectory of this technology and you could start to speculate about the future. And I think, again, that's what really contributed to becoming a technologist, somebody who really values their vision of the future and is really engaged with that and trying to make it happen. Anyway, so, okay, MIT teaching, and then I graduated from Lexington High School, and I was accepted to Harvard. And I went there thinking I'll be a computer scientist. And I took every computer science class in my freshman year and aced them all. And then there were none of them left. That's how bare
0: bones computer science was at the time. And, And that's obviously one of the best institutions in the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. Top institution. And I just think it was very early. You know, they had a mainframe, but it was really exclusively for like scientists. It wasn't for the more technology minded computer programming, I consider that a science or, you know, utilizing a science. But no, it was for hardcore scientists. And also when I was there, they got a PDP-10 and they started to teach these classes. And so I signed up to teach the classes and I became in my sophomore year, the youngest ever head teaching fellow of a undergraduate class. And it was the second largest class on campus. When I left there, there were 1,200 students a year taking it. Almost everybody that went to Harvard took that class. It was computer science for non computer scientists. It was sort of like, you know, during the go go days of the internet where you hear that the internet is big, but you don't know anything about it. So you go take a class. That was what Natural Sciences 110 was. And that was the class where I helped to recruit and manage 30 teaching fellows, teaching assistants basically, who would meet in what were called sections, small, groups of students from that class. And the professor would give a lecture to all 1,200 students a couple of times or three times a week, or maybe it was once a week. I don't even remember that, quite frankly, but we would teach sections to, you know, sort of individual attention to students. Anyway, that was an amazing time. Once again, there was no computer science for me to take, but there was lots of opportunity to be involved in computer science by teaching the classes that I had already taken. I never took NatSai 110 because it was too basic for me, but I taught that and another one called AM 110, which was applied math. So I did, was just doing a lot of teaching. But Natural Sciences 110 was really just perfect for me. Again, it was about evangelizing my vision for computers, because what I used to tell my students is the computers are going to be huge in the future. It is really going to pay off that you spend a little time understanding them. You may not necessarily become a computer programmer, but you will probably deal with a computer programmer. You will deal with computers. You will have these things in your life, and they will be important to whatever career you choose. That I can promise you. And then I just sort of teach them how to think in the way that a computer thinks. There's a logic associated with writing software, which is a very valuable logic to understand. And I couldn't take any more computer science, so I transferred into economics. My degree is in economics. My favorite thing to do was teaching for three years, sophomore, junior, and senior, being the head teaching fellow of NatSci 110, teaching in AM 110, and statistics classes. And that was really like the most fun thing for me. And then when I got out, I got recruited by Silicon Valley.
0: Before you go on, Jeff, what was that like on the social side? So, you're obviously a highly intelligent human among highly intelligent humans at Harvard. But socially, did that make you like the man on campus or did that push you in a hole? You know, people obviously respected you, but where did it put you socially at that time in your life? That's
1: a really good question. Yeah. So, you know, I haven't thought about it in a while, but yeah, it did separate me in a way where a lot of people that knew me thought I was what's called a tutor. A tutor is a grad student who lives on campus. And they might be a RAs, they used to call them, right? Resident assistants? Yeah, yeah. They were sort of Harvard's idea of an RA. And so they were all over our dorms. Our dorms were called colleges the, or houses. It was a college system that was brought over from the UK. So each one of them had a library and a lunchroom. It was trying to give a, a smaller school feel to a giant school. And so I think a lot of people thought that I was not really part of the undergraduate population, except for folks that got to know me. But yeah, it was a totally different relationship with students because I was grading their papers, my peers' papers, and everybody knew me. And
0: You're like, I can't date this girl. She's going <laughs> to see. I can't
1: date this girl until the semester's over because she's in my class. That's the way it was. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> And, and there were a lot of them in my class with 1,200 students, just about everybody was sort of in my class. So
0: yeah, And then again, just to paint this picture, you and I are both from Boston, but for listeners of all backgrounds, higher education is amazing and what's great, but you don't need to go to Harvard or MIT to be successful. But just to give you a picture and understanding that in that area of the country, New England, I think per square foot, there's more schools than anywhere in the world. Yeah. And you have some of the greatest schools in that region of the country. So you have a highly competitive, highly educated, highly intellectual population, but it really is a melting pot. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know about you and your generation, but we had very little bias. Like, that's what's hard for me going on in the world. Yeah. It didn't matter. We had nationalism. We tease each other. Like, my best friends are Portuguese back home. I'm Italian. (laughs) We tease each other all the time, and there's no hard feelings, you know? But the thing is, The camaraderie and the teams and the way that people think there, I loved it growing up because you all contribute to a bigger purpose and vision. So for you to be born into that, like your mom and dad were in that world and you're walking around MIT at 12 and then 14, you're teaching. If you ever get a chance as a listener to go to New England, check out Boston, go to Paul Revere's, you know, ride in the path and go to Lexington, shot heard around the world there's just something special about it. And then you start visiting Cambridge and Harvard and MIT and all these great schools. And you can just see, wow, this is how the country formed. This is how we became the greatest nation of the world. And that is no disrespect to any other nation, but we've been just the or
1: to, or to any other state in our nation. I mean, yeah. But there is a benefit from having so much availability of great education. It gives a level of opportunity for people that want that opportunity within that region to maximize their movement forward, their ability to steer their life with intention and get into things that they're interested in that are sustainable. And by sustainable I just mean that you can make a living at it and you can have a roof over your head and food on your plate and not a lot to worry about and be doing something that you like. Right? That is to me the American dream. The American dream is that there's opportunity for all. And that is a you know what you're talking about, the Northeast is a place that has tremendous opportunity for all. And remember, I came up in Lexington, Lexington High School, one of the best high schools in the entire United States. And yet we had a vocational school right down the road that was also really great because not everybody wants to go that direction, but everybody wants to be able to stand on their own two feet and earn a living. And so You go over to the other school if you wanted to. You didn't have to go to high school. You could go to a vocational high school and you could learn to be a mechanic or a nurse or something that was more of a career that you could start right out of high school instead of going to college. Not everybody was expected to go to college. It's ultra liberal. I know a lot of people recoil at that term, but that was the idea there is that it was very much a almost libertarian vibe where you know, if you're not hurting somebody else, like do your thing. But the- I
0: love New Hampshire, live free or die. That's one of my yeah, favorite state slogans. A great
1: thing. Yeah. And yet it's one of the more conservative places that you'll find around New England, actually, very interestingly enough. It was a place that was incredibly collaborative, incredibly cooperative. There was excess. And so there was ability to have empathy. People were not in the same sort of rush, rush, rush that I see around a lot of the world right now, where they don't have time to realize that maybe engaging even with the opposite side would benefit both sides and that it would lift everybody up and it would make everybody a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more secure and a little bit safer and a little bit more sustainable, right? That this sort of compete, 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 winner takes all. Everybody that's not on your side is your enemy, right? Everybody that's not within your ideological or philosophical lane Is a threat to you. That's not true. It's just not true. What's great about America is that we have a broad spectrum of people that are right for a lot of different crises in America, right? Sometimes it's all about moving technology forward and you need a certain type of person. Sometimes it's about defending our country and you need another type of person that can make quick decisions about folks that are really against us. And there are different personalities and actually different biologies that we all have. There's a study that shows that you can image the brain. By measuring the ratio between the amygdala and the cerebral cortex, you can determine with 95% accuracy whether the person's conservative or liberal. Why is that? Now, it doesn't mean you're born one way or the other. It develops that way. It can develop. That's right. It turns out that environment can have a lot of, I'm basically a geneticist now, right, in my current business, which we're going to get to. But the simple idea that you're just sort of born with your DNA and that determines you is, you know, been long debunked turns out that there are all these different layers on top of DNA. One of them is called epigenetics. It's the expression of your DNA. And so your environment can impact you greatly, and you can even pass that impact onto your kids. So if you grew up one way, it isn't just what you say to the kids that creates their environment, that you've actually got some genetic predisposition that may also impact them. So it's fascinating. I mean, there's a little bit of Darwinian evolution that turns out to be true, that's on the basic, that's proven out by basic DNA. And then there's a Lamarckian one that was a big debate back then that said, you know, where Lamarck said you could evolve more quickly than Darwin thought you could because it wasn't your DNA. You didn't have to just mix DNA in order to get a new person. He said there was some other influence there. That's my understanding of it. And I may be wrong, so don't send me hate mail if, if I got his <laughs> theory wrong. But it did have to do with sort of faster adaptation to your environment and that is epigenetics.
0: Yeah, and see, I was just going to ask you that question. I believe in adaptation, and we don't have to agree, but Mm -hmm. I always look at the world through a biblical worldview, and I believe in adaptation completely. I think it's scientific, it's proven, but when somebody uses the term evolution, I don't necessarily agree with the Darwinian philosophy, but what are your thoughts on that?
1: Wow, you know, I hate to get into this because you, you know, a lot of people go ahead and divide their opinions of people based on things like religion and politics. So let me just disclaim what I'm saying a little bit just so that if people don't agree with this point of view, I hope they will just sort of think about it in relation to their relationship to God.
0: So Yeah, and just you know, we have listeners from all over the world and people know when they listen to our show, I'm coming at it from a biblical worldview and I completely believe that way. But our listeners just are looking for truth and how they can apply it and grow. So if you have a different opinion than me or them, we're all here together to learn and grow. Either you're right, I'm right, or we're both wrong, but we're all in the search of truth. So I just... (laughs) Well, I, I love that
1: expression, search of truth. That actually is at the core of my relationship to the idea of God. So I've tried to reconcile in my life the idea that because I'm not formally of a particular religion, that I don't subscribe to an organized religion, But I still have what I feel is some level of spirituality that borrows from many of them and that doesn't discount the potential existence of God. And it's taken me a long time to get to that point to try to understand how all these little pieces could still coexist and fit together. And the way I look at it is this, is that I think everybody would agree that their concept of God created the universe. And the universe is a very complex place, and 2,000, 3,000 years ago, human beings were not that sophisticated and not ready to understand the full breadth of the terrarium in which we live. It's like the universe has all these rules to it, nature, you know, nature or God. You could almost think of them as being equivalent, right? Something set this all up, something set it in motion we may never touch that thing, but the pursuit of truth about nature, about our world will lead you to your God. And sometimes you'll just see wisdom in a book. And the Bible is a tremendous book about morality and spirituality. And really, I look at it almost as a survival manual for back then. You look at a lot of the things that it says in there, and it just sort of outlines a framework by which societies can even happen, and we can start collaborating and lifting each other up. And we can attribute that to God's will, or we can attribute that to some really wise people who heard God inside themselves, maybe didn't actually talk to them, maybe he didn't dictate this thing, but they wrote down stuff that they knew made sense because they could feel it. And it really did lead to some very, very good stuff. There's been some bad things that come out when we can't be flexible about our vision for one another and resolve a lot of the differences that we have in our sort of spiritual perceptions or our relationships to God, how we implement those in our life. But I think if you are looking for truth, if you are keeping an open mind, if you are absorbing everything you can from the very smart morality that I'm not that familiar with, every religion, but I think I get a lot of exposure to the three major Western religions. And they're all pretty darn close when you get down to the core tenets, which really have respect for one another and compassion for one another and collaboration with one another and all these things. And maybe some of them say, and by the way, you should be preaching and trying to get people into your religion, whatever. I think a lot of that influence comes from organized religion, because once you organize, you become an organism and organisms need to grow to live. And so sometimes that intent or that mechanism creeps into them. So you're pursuing truth, and you go and you look around this gargantuan terrarium we call the universe, and you go, God set this up, right? And everything that we discover here was laid by God. It was put in there intentionally, and it works, and it has a certain perfection to it that comes from this concept of God and I don't ascribe to the idea that God is kind of like a concierge who listens to us and decides and adjudicates every single thing that goes on in our life. I think that he lays out within these scriptures, within these documents from theological scholars, that's where these books came from, a lot of basics that can help us to find additional truths in our universe and act in a way that will help to sustain the universe, to sustain humankind with all of the great information that we find there. But then those books at some point run out. They run out because we weren't ready to hear more. But now we're discovering things about our universe that people back in the year zero or 1000 BC just never even had time to think of while they were trying to survive. And didn't have any of the tools that we have for discovery. But now we're looking down to the smallest part of ourselves, our DNA, and understanding how that works. And we're looking out to the farthest reaches of the universe and trying to speculate what was the single origin of the universe. Maybe that's God, right? You know, these are all questions that are open. But we do know if you really believe in God, all that stuff was from him or her or it, right? And so this is the seeking of truth. And that's what you said, finding truth. That is the key. And we need to stay open and not become calcified in just one way of thinking. So who can show us how the universe works? Scientists. To me now, science is really important. Scientists are the ones who read God's Encyclopedia Britannica to us. And some people don't know Encyclopedia Britannica, but before the internet, you used to get a book that (laughs) had everything in it. It was called an encyclopedia. You can find them at the library probably still. Who knows in the antique section. You could think about the Bible as being everything that we were capable of internalizing at the moment that was useful to living a good and survivable life and creating societies. It could be penned by God himself or herself or itself, right? Or it could have been from really smart people. It really doesn't matter. It has in it a basic moral framework that makes sense. As we discover more and more about the universe. And now you could characterize good and evil, and you could literally derive, if you knew everything, you could derive that morality without even starting with those basic sort of instructional books, right? Because good would sustain us, it would sustain humankind. If we are special, we were meant to sustain ourselves forever. And scientists can give us views of things. That help us either sustain ourselves or destroy ourselves. Like literally, we keep discovering things that are two-edged swords. You know, they discovered radioactivity. It did kill Madame Curie and a bunch of grad students. So there was a cost. You know, it was this dangerous thing. They didn't know it. They didn't wasn't written about in the Bible or whatever. Nobody knew. Scientists were like breaking new ground and it was dangerous ground. And it turned out that the radiation killed some people. Now it can light whole cities and keep us warm or keep us. Air conditioned, or it can blow up our entire world. The only difference between those two situations is our maturity as a society to be able to handle that immense power that we've been given by someone or something or the universe or nature. And so, my now current theory is that of spiritualism is that reality happens at the nexus of nature and human nature because both of them are powerful things. Nature is true. And if we seek the truth of nature, we will improve human nature. And human nature is what's left of our animal sides. And we can end up holding back good stuff or enhancing bad stuff because we don't have the maturity. We don't have the open mindedness. We don't have the training. We don't have the education. We don't have the time to think about these things. And that makes life really, really tricky. So you can find a lot of situations where something really great can be held back because people just can't handle that disruption in their life. Or something really terrible can go ahead and make its way into society because people don't have the time or the tools to evaluate it. And it seems like a simple answer to all their problems. And so they grab onto it because it grips their fears and it leverages their emotions. And, you know, evangelism can, or leadership can lead you any direction. It's a, it's a, charismatic energy that could take you any direction in life. The world is complex and it gets more complex every day and we can handle it. We have been given all the tools that we need and it is our mission now to sustain humanity and to go forward for the next thousand years and the next thousand after that and maybe be here a million years from now because we were given this perfect terrarium, the universe, and now it's ours to win or lose. If there's a love in the universe, it's for one another. That was also a gift to us, that empathy for one another, that respect for one another, that commitment to humanity for one another. And that's what steers a lot of my life right now. And sure, okay, God is love. God does love us, right? But God set up an environment like you would set up for your children, a place for them to succeed, and you want them to stand on their own two feet eventually. And we are given that opportunity to do that, but it's incredibly big commitment. It's a challenge to the human race, but at some point, your kids are out of the nest, right? And it's now their responsibility to take all these gifts, all this understanding, to make something of it. And that is something that would be really gratifying to any father to see their kids do that. Why would it not be gratifying to a heavenly father, the most perfect father, right? So this is the way, I've got a very different, I don't think this conforms to any strict religion, but I think that it is accepting, and it draws from, and it's consistent with, I think, many religions, at least all the ones that I'm exposed to. And I think that theology is very, very important in our society, and it leads us to questions that help us to determine what to do with all of these new powers that we get Every single year. And I've been given at AGT a power, right? And my whole mission at AGT is to do what? It's to take this new power of gene and cell therapy and to use it to end as much suffering and end as much early death from serious human disease as possible for as many people as quickly as possible, right? That's our mission, right? Think about that. A company with a mission like that. Yeah, it's a gift also that. Turns out that mission can make money. So it's sustainable, right? We're not making money right now. It's all investment. It's all investors like you, actually, that have said, hey, this is a good thing. I can get behind this. It's not just a good thing. It doesn't just appeal to my heart. It even appeals to my mind because Jeff can talk about, well, how does this lead to a profit? And because we're talking a little bit about the business, I need to make it crystal clear that if we mention anything about the company and stock and investors, we are a private company. This is not a solicitation. We are not allowed to talk to anybody but accredited investors. So just be careful about anything that you hear about the company. This is not a public release on the future of the company. This is my dreams, hopes, aspirations, my learning experience and my arc through life. But it goes through this company and that part of my life is really huge.
0: Absolutely. And before we go on too, as a listener's Jeff, what you were saying is really talking about just that unconditional love and free will that God has for us. Mm -hmm. And he lets us have the choice. He set up the truth. And for some of you listening, Jeff kept referring to books. What he was referring to is the books of the Bible. Within the Bible, the one book, there are 66 books of the Bible. There's an Old Testament that's before Jesus Christ, and there's the New Testament after Jesus Christ. That's a timeline division. And for me... I've never read one word of the Bible where it's not shown true. And what's crazy is if you look at all the science out there, the Bible has not only ports it, but a lot of times, I mean, how many great inventors that have changed the world, how many great medical, like, you know, I always think of Louis Pasteur and the first and second law of thermodynamics. I remember going through engineering and reading them in the Bible. I mean, basic stuff like the world is round and slavery is wrong. I mean, all the things that we're just discovering sometimes, God put in the Bible and we just didn't see it or interpret it right. Like Jeff was saying, we weren't at that point, but it's like probably like cells. I mean, in biology, how much of me and you is similar, but then there's that like percent, percent, percent that's difference and it makes us look so different. But that whether you're building a shed or whether you're building a house or whether you're building a mansion, you have foundational principles that are the same and you scale it to different levels. And that's kind of like how the Bible is. I mean, the principles in the Bible, I believe all truth comes from God. And I believe that what Jeff's doing is he's looking at the world through this filter and the law of gravity is there. You don't have to believe it, but if you jump off a building, you're going to end up figuring (laughs) out it's real, right? Laws are laws. When you're reading through your Bible, the wisdom that's in there, it's always right. We may not see it until afterwards, but it's there and it's right. So Let's go back to your college and then get back to where you are today because it's super exciting how you bridge that and how you're taking these truths and how you're interpreting the data and you're applying it to help people. So go on with that. We're finishing off.
1: If you don't mind, let's not leave out religions that are not just Old Testament, New Testament. I mean, if you study the Quran and I'm not endorsing any religion in this podcast, that's just not my nature you will find a lot of the same foundational elements that you're talking about. And it's a more modern book. It actually speculates about atoms and DNA in a more direct way. And there's a lot of pride. I mean, my family is quite diverse. The entire spectrum of all the Western religions, I get exposed to all these things. And, you know, there's some pride in that, that that's a more almost more accurate scientific thing like what you're talking about. But it makes sense because it was written later, right? We knew more. But that's the point is I believe that there is only one God. And I don't think we need to argue about which one it is. (laughs) There's only one origin to the universe. There was only one thing that originated the universe. There is only one thing that led to all the physical realities, all the realities of nature, the giant terrarium that I'm telling you about that we all live in and that we can sustain, that we have the power to sustain or destroy.
0: Yeah, and even the Bible talks about, like, you keep calling it terrarium, and I smile when you say that, because if you look at it from that ecosystem, there's even the way it's filtered and the ozone layer and the mm-hmm. level between the sun and us, how God designed that, it is all scientific, but we'd be fried little toasty creatures and dead if it wasn't for that perfection, the yeah. stuff that we're just figuring out. you know you can get somebody who doesn't even understand how a fingernail grows really. I mean, they really if you took one system of the human body, you could spend your whole life and not be a perfection. but mm-hmm. And we're discovering more and more about it. Yeah, every day.
1: One, day. one day we will have the wisdom. We will have learned so much that you, a human being, will be a billiard ball universe where we can tell you everything about yourself from things that we can measure in your body and we can predict everything. And this is really interesting. You
0: know? no, I know, it is And crazy. what you were saying, though,
1: is so true. The difference between me and you is point oh 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 one percent in terms of our genome. And then it's just different expression of our genome, right? And that's true about any person on earth, male or female, from any ethnic background, from any race, from any creed, from any religion, from anything. This is a truth that I have learned over these last 12 years, because going gene and cell therapy is about getting down to the DNA and improving it for better health. And so a precept of that is how much of you is in your DNA. You're not entirely contained there. A lot will have to do. And there's so many studies that show that where you're born has more to do with where you'll end up than your DNA.
0: Yeah, 100%. And going back to, there's people who get hopeless because science, and I'm putting quotes, if you're listening to the podcast version or the YouTube version, right? For the YouTube watchers, I'm sorry, I'm so ugly, but you're seeing me, but hey. But (laughs) I know people who've got brain scans. And what are they called? Uh, Forgive you, probably know Jeff, the active MRIs, where they watch you live. It's like an MRI live. Yeah. And, I've seen people who some people say, well, you're born an alcoholic and other people say you buy your actions, your brain got wired that way. And now you are an alcoholic. And I think there's some truth to both, but I've known people who had these scans of their brain, like, oh yeah, you're an alcoholic. You'll always be an alcoholic. Then their life changes. They're off the alcohol. They go back and get the same type of brain scan and it shows they're perfect. Yeah. So our and, body and that chemistry is can be restored. So if you're a listener, yes, it's hard. But don't ever lose your hope because somebody's misinterpreting science. There's real science. Two plus two is always four, no matter what the government tells you. Yeah. But when it comes to this, <laughs> we can see facts, but they need to be interpreted well. So don't ever lose hope. If you think you're born that way and you can't change, that's an unbiblical, unhopeful statement. We can all change for the better or worse. Yeah. So just move forward and do it the better way. But what were you going to say, Jeff? Yeah, no, I think what you're saying
1: is true. I think that what you're hinting at, or at least sort of what I'm hearing and what you're saying is consistent with what I believe in, and that is that scientists are important priests and prophets of the terrarium we live in. And the terrarium is bigger than Earth. It is the universe. I mean, there are physical principles that they're discovering now, new particles, the boson. That's what gives you mass. We didn't understand why your hands, when you, even though they're mostly space you clap them together they hit each other instead of going right through because theoretically when you look at the chances of molecules hitting each other there's so much space there they really should go through
0: and i used to sit in, i used to sit in class and not college and think <laughs> i think you could really run through a wall i mean, i don't know how it's done but i really believe molecularly well we may it.
1: discover ways where we can do that where we can somehow remove the bosons temporarily that give you mass and We can defy gravity or we can defy the principles of physics where objects have reactions and opposite reactions It may this all comes from physical reality. And once again, expand your mind, right? Who gave it to us? God. Who set up this stuff? God, right? If you're religious, go ahead and embrace these things in your life. And now it's too much for all of our minds to get it all inside. And so we're just going to have to do our best at it, but we shouldn't ignore science. The best of science is just trying to find God's truth, the best of science. And what turned me on to this is that some of the most influential scientists that I met on this journey were incredibly religious, and I didn't understand how they could reconcile how organized religion is frequently held back science, and that they could still believe in organized religion. But what they believed in was the spiritual message of that. You know, there's politics and humans in religious organizations, just like there are anywhere else that you go. We can't throw off our human nature and become perfect.
0: But we Amen. should. God will never fail us. We fail each other, and we're the people who bring in the crap in the churches. But the pure Bible, what you're saying, 100% agree.
1: Yeah, we well, have to constantly strive to be the best. It's sort of like expressions that you hear that. The only thing it takes for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. And a lot of the evils in our life, they pay, right? So evil is very sustainable, right? If you corrupt something, you make money by corrupting it. If you cheat, you get benefits from the cheating, right? If you fight against those things, if you're anti-corruption and you manage to make the world less corrupt, where's your economic benefit from that? No, you poured your energy into it and you got nothing in return except for you did the right thing and you made the world a more sustainable place right and i think okay that you should think of as maybe a spiritual imperative in this world is to say there's nothing in the bible that says you should be greedy or selfish at least i never read anything and nobody quoted anything to me that said that those were virtues right they've become things that we put up on a pedestal now oh yep, that it says rich. money That's is true. not evil
0: But the love of money is evil.
1: Yeah, that's right. There are things that are considered evil, gluttony, right? And too much money could be considered gluttony in a way. The bottom line is, is that if you will take an expansive view of your fellow human beings and not dismiss them or discount them for small things that are like tiny artifacts on their surface that come from where they were born or just how that part of the world Evolved to deal with the physical conditions. Whether it changed the color of their skin, whether they happened to, you know, emerge in a society that believed this religion or that religion that focused on this god or that god. Hey, it's all the same. There's only one universe. All right, and I don't think that any of the true spiritual leaders in the world would say that this was like a zero sum game where we were supposed to wipe out the people that didn't believe what we believe. Right? Yeah. That's yeah, not the purpose of the Bible. And think about this, out of biblical characters, right, and probably people won't like me referring to Jesus that way, but what you read about Jesus, right, there's really good stuff in there that's not being applied today that would help you if we would take time to think about how would Jesus react to what's going on in the world today? How would he react to what our politicians are doing? And I mean, all the way up to the top. You know, what would he tell us to do? And I think what he'd say is, he's against corruption. He's for people, and he's against selfishness and corruption. He's for collaboration. He's for us working together. Jesus faced a lot of economic conditions back in his time that we face again today. An elite, powerful, rich population that controlled everything and neglected all of the poor. Those poor became Christians because he said, you know, because Jesus led them in a way where they believed that they could have a connection to God, even though they couldn't bathe every day like the rich people could, right? And that came out of Jesus's exposure to baptism in John the Baptist, who also met the same fate as Jesus, but not in such a glorified way. Rome just said, bring me his head on a platter. And that was the end of John the Baptist. Well, Jesus was was too popular at the time. And so it was more complex getting rid of him. But he was a radical and a liberal and a seditionist. He didn't subscribe to the society as it was in his eyes. He went to the temples, which were full of rich people in a way. The priests lived the best life there back then. I mean, you can see the housing that they lived in from all of the archaeological digs. And you could understand how they became an elite class that neglected everybody else and that they would conspire with Rome in a way to keep the status quo. And Jesus didn't believe that that was right for God's people, right? Which is everyone who are all children of the universe, children of nature, children of God, whatever you believe, there is this fundamental equality that runs through all of us. And so that was an amazing thing. I think about that a lot in terms of trying to decide how I feel about politics and policy and things today. And I think that if you really can get in a quiet place in your mind and not just worry about yourself for a little while and not be overcome by your own fears and your own suspicions, if you can accept that we evolved to be naturally sort of knee-jerk reactions and full of fear because we were born in the middle of the food chain, not the top of the food chain that we occupy right now. So Stoking our fear is really easy and can be so easily manipulated by stoking our fears, right? But if you can get into a quiet place and you can hear that word within you, you know, we all have. And, you know, you can steer yourself and you can utilize that small impact that you can have on the universe towards a greater good. And what goes around comes around is just reality that if we put out all this good, if most people spend a little bit of time, trying to pursue right. And even at a little bit of personal sacrifice, well, I'm not going to get that tax reduction that I wanted, or it's not good for me right now, or, oh, that seems to be from people that I naturally distrust or whatever. No, if we could get rid of all that noise and do a little good each day, thinking about, well, and I don't think there'd be anything wrong, no matter what religion you're from, to say, what would Jesus think in this situation? Because that's amazing. It's like you don't have to decide anything more about Jesus than to just read all the record and all of the things that he said and understand its philosophy to it is really an egalitarian, humanistic, inclusive philosophy that leads to good and leads to a better world that we can all share together. And so, look, I can't, interpret Jesus for anybody else. This is just what's come into my consciousness. And this is why I think it's so important, or at least for me, it was important not to ascribe to a particular religion, but to believe in trying to find the good in all of them, and to reconcile science and the discovery of the universe, nature, which if there is a God, all right, it had to have all come from that, right? That is the origin. And so to reconcile all that stuff, an incredibly difficult intellectual process that takes a lot of time and a lot of meditation. And I don't do it at formal moments, but it's a very important thing in my life because I want to be a good person. I want to do something beneficial to humankind. I want, this is just, I just have an empathy for people that don't have it as good as I have it myself. And Who haven't been as lucky as me, maybe. And luck comes in so many forms. So, you know, anyway, it's complicated. And that's why I didn't really want to talk about it because it's like, I'm not (laughs) a religious person. I don't want to influence people, you know, in that way. I think everybody has their own way of coming to sort of a spiritual reconciliation with what they hear inside of them every day. They can decide to ignore it. Okay. Or they can be so scared that they can turn away from it, or they can be in such distress that they can literally be in a survival mode where they have no time to think about it. And then evil will take advantage of us. Evil will go ahead and lead us in a bad direction. And, you know, it's happened before and it'll happen again. And I just hope that good people will have enough time to really think about these things to hold that back.
0: Yeah. And what you're saying with, you know, we might use different terms or have a different perspective but it's lining up with the bible and the thing is like it says pure religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their infliction and to keep yourself unspotted from the world mm-hmm. jesus never referred to this is what the church said mm-hmm. it's always this is what my father says coming right from the word of god right from the bible mm-hmm. and to be a christian means to be christ-like like we were saying what would jesus do right mm-hmm. and the way he lived, he's a son of God, and he lived with that love, and he lived with that helpfulness, and he gave us free will. And Christianity is the only religion that doesn't tell you you have to do this. You have that free will. That's what's beautiful about it. Mm-hmm. And then what you were saying, like inside of you, you know, the Bible talks about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And when we trust Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and we hear from God directly. Like that still small voice that you can't really explain, but you know it's there. And for anybody who's trusted Christ, it's wonderful because you have that peace and that comfort and that guide. So yeah, I didn't mean to bring you to a place you weren't comfortable talking about, but... No, I'm fine with it. I
1: just think that I'm not on your level with interpretation of biblical scripture and you know stuff like that. I'm only a guy who's heard a little bit from so many different religions and has evolved sort of my own kind of spirituality. And I'm so glad to hear that it's not inconsistent with your beliefs, right? But I... Well, you don't want to trust Not, me.
0: You want to trust the word of God, but I'm just saying that's the word. No, of I'm of joking. Course. I'm joking. I'm
1: joking. In that way, we both absolutely agree, right? Is that I think that you can have your personal relationship with the universe, with nature, with spiritualism, with God. And if you can really listen, if you can throw away all of our earthly imperfections and really listen, you will hear it loud and clear and you will understand good. And you will pursue good, and you will be on the side of good, and you will hold back those that would turn away from that good. And you will prevent them from putting your world in chaos. And if you're looking around the world today and you're not seeing chaos, you're not paying attention.
0: exactly. And I don't want to, again, we don't need to do around this, but my biggest pet peeve is the concept of race. There's one race, the human race. The human race. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I got to remember that. But I actually bought the domain years ago, oneworld, org, and I've never launched the site. But now I look at what we're doing as a world, and it's like, come on, guys. It doesn't matter if you look different or your skin's a different color. Yeah, everybody has done bad things to every civilization, and I'm not saying it was right. But we're all people. We're all humans. And if somebody treats me bad today, if I treat somebody bad today, that's wrong. That's sin. That needs to be dealt with but we need to start uniting as a people and moving forward because there's nobody in India that's better than me and I'm not better than anybody in India. Oh
1: my gosh. I'm so glad that you said that because that's exactly my feeling too, is that look, if I walk down the street and I see a homeless man, I don't feel like I'm a better person than that homeless man. I just feel like I had a different life that landed me where I am and that landed him where he is or her where she is. Right. I mean, that's the point is that Yeah, we are absolutely fundamentally the same. And 12 years of being in genetics has taught me that, you know, from science. And I hope science would help us to understand how little difference there is between anybody on earth. They may look totally different, but when we sequence the human genome, we call it sequencing the human genome. Now, there are small differences between genomes all around the planet, but a lot of the differences are actually just expression levels that came from environmental factors that are inheritable
0: Yes, nations and, yeah. and cultures, yeah. not races.
1: Not and not human race. Human exactly. race is one race. I love that idea and I'm going to remember that, but it's absolutely consistent with how I feel about the world. And it's why it doesn't matter who you help. You help somebody and here's the other thing is that this whole idea of a rising tide lifts all boats, right? If everybody's doing basically good in the world, guess what? They can do it for selfish reasons. Cuz long-term self-interest is actually good. But you've got to see through to the whole human race coming up together. Because if it's a zero-sum game, winner take all, all right, then, you know, it's a last man standing situation. It's law of the jungle. It's going back to a place that was not the slightest bit great, where we were looking over our shoulder at bigger animals or worrying about tribes coming in and killing us, right? We subscribe to something better than that. We can talk about our differences. We can have compromises. We can come up with effective sets of rules. And as a matter of fact, America represents that potentially better than any country on earth when we're at our best. The United States is a country of laws, not a country of a particular religion. And it's very important to see why that gives us religious freedom and opportunity to find God because. All we have is a set of rules where we can have as much freedom as possible without hurting one another. That's called the law. And nobody's above the law. That's the key. Literally, the U.S. system recognizes our sameness in terms of our rights. It even starts with something that says, all are created equal under God. It does say men, but I don't think that's
0: really what they even meant. What they meant is people. Yeah, well, men... In proper English, men means mankind. Yeah. And we take that to this ridiculous level. It's not a biased term. It's literally mankind. And that was the interpretation when it was written. That was the intent. When people spin it out of control, they're just idiots. Like, I mean, they're biased. I heard somebody say one time, that's the pot calling the kettle black. And that's an old saying that has nothing to do with bias in any way. And this person flipped out and thought it was a racial slur. And I'm like, it's the pot calling the kettle black is an old term. And I had to explain it to them like, well, that's not what they meant. I'm like, listen, just because the word black or white isn't there. Oh, yeah. yeah. People can have knee jerk
1: reactions to like what they consider microaggressions at this point. But look, there's a big sensitivity because there's a big problem. So I don't think we should underestimate right now that some parts of our society feel under siege.
0: Oh, no, no. I'm not, I'm not trying to so, say that. Yeah, what I'm so, saying they is, have a
1: knee-jerk reaction. And I get this all the time, by the way. Right now, we're in the HIV market, right? And so, I don't know if we'll ever get to what I'm doing today. But this no, is no, that's a what I was discussion just saying. anyway, right? We should Maybe we need to reconvene for another two hours for the original intent of this interview. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, actually, that's what I was just going to say. We've had a great episode. And the listeners are probably like, wow, I mean, we're going to a heavy place. I think we've really got people thinking. But let's do this. Let's put this to the side for now. And you can reach out to myself or Jeff as listeners. And we can get deeper into the theological and the purpose and meaning of life. And that's honestly, people say, never talk about politics and religion. You know what? Religion, your belief, because we're all going to die. We get about 75 years on average. Jeff might help us go longer, but we get about 75 years on average. And then we're going to meet our maker. So that is really the most important thing. And after that, the political system is what puts these laws under control. And when you use that word, God brought the law, the yeah. Bible, the rules, not to condemn us, but to save us through them, to give us freedom through Jesus. Yeah. And that's what's crazy. When you say and the give laws, us survivability.
1: Right? Yes. Because if we're yes. all just fighting each other, right? Well, you know, it's like Lincoln said, a house divided cannot, cannot stand. stand. Yeah. Yep. And so it's critical that we work together and the law is a great way to do that. But then we also have to commit that nobody is above the law. And that's tough. When people that are above the law seem to be giving you benefits, right?
0: Yeah, and, I'm and that get means fr- we have <laughs> to throw
1: off that selfishness, right? We have to say, okay, what is really right and wrong here, and do transgressions against God's law actually make a difference or not? Or can we just go ahead and accept those because of expedience and convenience and self-interest or just our current survival, right? Yep. And it's that's a really tough question. And if some of the things that we talked about today. Get people to ask that question to themselves. I think that would be, you know, a valuable thing that came out of this. But you're right. Let's move on from this. And it is very dangerous discussing religion and politics because people have very strong opinions about this stuff. Yeah. So if you have I don't ascribe to anything in particular, and I'm not trying to promote a particular agenda here on this podcast, obviously.
0: Absolutely. And if you have any right now, if you're mad or sad or confused or you have real legitimate questions, direct those questions to me. That way, Jeff can keep moving forward for mankind. I'll take those religious questions and the compliments or the complaints. You send those my way. Oh, but Jeff, a... let's do this. Take your story back to you're at college, you're teaching, you're finishing up at MIT, and then bring us through there where you're at today because you had an interesting journey. So let's oh, yeah. talk about your remarkable journey, get to today, and then we'll move forward.
1: Yeah. Okay. So there I am at Harvard, and I'm majoring in economics. You can think of that as almost like business. But I'm really cutting edge when it comes to computers. And then when I graduated, of course, computers is the most attractive thing. So Hewlett Packard recruits me to go out to Silicon Valley. And Hewlett Packard didn't really have my same attitude towards computers. It was just another business unit for them. They were into mini computers and it was really just a commercial enterprise without, at least in my mind, anything sort of inspirational and visionary about it. They were successful. It was a great company and you could do great work there. And good living, all that stuff. But it didn't really appeal to my sort of futuristic vision for computers and where I wanted to go with those and where I thought it was going to benefit society and what I was really passionate about. But as luck would have it, I get an interview at Apple and I become the support and training manager within the international marketing department of the Lisa division at Apple. So Lisa was. The first version of the Mac, you could think of it that way. The first time they implemented this graphic user interface, what an amazing time to be at Apple. I was in my early 20s. Apple was flush with money because the Apple II was so successful. And the amazing thing is that nobody took Apple seriously in the sort of mainstream computer industry. Mainst- the mainframe computers and the mini computers thought they were the only serious computational power on earth. And Apple was a toy. And meanwhile, Steve Jobs was there with a vision that computers could be in everybody's house, maybe eventually in everybody's pocket, and that the critical thing was accessibility. You need to make them approachable. You need to make them intuitive. You need to make them easy to access by common people. And that the Apple II was an entree into that, but the key was a graphic user interface that he saw at Xerox park which i had seen years before actually because i had a friend that went there that was in one of my classes that i taught and he invited me out and he showed it to me and i was like yeah of course that's the best way to communicate with computers steve jobs saw that he had a whole company and he embraced that in a way that nobody else mainstream did it was so amazing to me to see how easily apple was written off how unimportant vision was considered and how even though apple was successful Nobody really seemed to understand sort of the internal drivers of the Apple corporate culture and why they were that small group of people that could change the world, like Margaret Mead said. And it was just amazing during that time that we were under siege. We were being counted out. There were so many articles saying, This is the end of Apple. IBM introduces the PC, and the winner is the IBM PC, right? And all that was neglecting sort of Steve Jobs. Vision for where these things were going. He was skating to where the puck was going while everybody else was just being successful at where the puck was being knocked about at that moment. So I learned a lot from there. That was where I got my street MBA. We had people at Apple who were just talk about remarkable people. It was the best of the best. It was really reminiscent of all the best environments I'd ever been in, in terms of education and intellect. And there were a lot of people there that were quite gracious with what they understood. And I really learned from Stanford and Harvard MBAs all about marketing. And that was a very important lesson. The other thing I learned was that personal computers were the future. Software, the internet was just coming online. I was seeing all these things early and I was fitting them into my model for the future of the world. And I was seeing really great things. And I thought that Steve Jobs' vision was crystal clear, despite that he wasn't the easiest person to work for. I didn't work directly for him, <laughs> but
0: I've heard that from everybody. I've heard visionary, tons of quality skills, but he was a very difficult person to deal with.
1: Yeah, no, I think that he may not have had to have been exactly like he was to be as successful as he was. But let's give him credit for his good stuff: amazing vision and amazing natural marketing ability. That's the idea. Really of evangelism. It's being able to tell a story about what you see in your head that's emotionally engaged and gets people to join you on that journey. We used to talk about journey quite a bit. You use that expression from I think it's Hinduism or Buddhism that the journey is the reward, you know, and he did study some of that too. But the corporate culture sort of reflected vision and mission and passion for those things. And that was the magic and greeting it, as far as I was concerned, and I was caught up in that too, and I was flying all over the world just bringing the gospel of the graphic user interface everywhere. The same graphic user interface that was being called simultaneously back in the US by the top analysts, right to the faces of the top executives at Apple when they were showing this guy the graphic user interface, worthless. He basically said, that's not the way people interact with computers, and they don't want to keep having to lean forward and play with a mouse. They lean back in their chair and they put their keyboard in their lap, and they know how to talk to the C prompt. And then that's the efficient way to work with computers. And this is very important, right? And that's how it always was, how it is and always will be, right? And that's why it's so important to flex our thinking, right? Because the world changes, right? The precepts of everything remain the same, the foundations, but the building on top can be different. And so anyway, that was an amazing, amazing time, and what you do is you go out there and you just share your passion, you share your understanding, you share your vision with everybody around the world, and so many people are excited by that, and see the benefits and join that and propel it. And like you said earlier, Apple may be today the biggest company on earth. The point is is that vision ended up winning over what economic might. It's the idea that the pen is mightier than the sword. It's the idea that an idea can move mountains, right? And that was, you know, what we possessed at Apple. And one of the reasons is because Steve Jobs was all in, right? He had a vision. And maybe one of his weaknesses was he couldn't see anything else. Right. So he couldn't be practical about how he implemented his vision. It was like he knew he was right and that was it. Was he right all the time? A high percentage of the time, right? High enough. And I think that Apple misses his influence even today because he did have such a unique thing. And it was very important to the company. There's great technology there, but vision and mission and corporate culture and this whole idea of how to market things with evangelism was core to Apple's success. It would have easily been wiped out by probably Microsoft and IBM, but it didn't. And that's a credit to Steve Jobs. So anyway, that was amazing time, right? That was my model for business. That was my street MBA. It was also my advanced PhD in organizational psychology. It was something that reaffirmed everything that I understood about technology and about sort of futurism and the value of technology and how to sort of bring it out to the most people and bring the most good from technology, right? Because remember, like I said, every technology is a two-edged sword. You know, there's a computer on every missile that's aimed at the United States right now right? But, but then we have computers in our pocket now that give us access to the entire universe of knowledge as it is today. And all we have to do is have a little bit of ability to tell the real stuff that's true on the internet versus what's not true. You know, that's on us to figure out what we're reading. But anyway, so Apple and great career there. I spent like five or six years. I spent some time at Apple corporate. And then I was at a spin out called Claris, which was a software spin out. I had a lot of international exposure. It's allowed me to gain perspective on the United States from looking in and listening to other people's perceptions. It's very interesting what you can learn and to also sort of experience and bond with other cultures. So that was an amazing, amazing time in my life. After that, I just went into startups and I joined some startups where I was in significant positions like VP of sales and marketing. I co-founded some I was, had all these different roles, and I was in it, made some of my own startups, and I had enough hits that at age 40, I look at my checking account, 40, 41, something like that, and I realized I don't have to work anymore. I actually had accrued enough success, you know, sort of financial success, and I thought you know, it was a really stressful time. It was right after 9-11, and I thought, okay, I can kind of let off on the pedal the 16-hour days a little bit. And retire, you know, it always been a dream for me to retire early. And I thought, hey, I can do it now. Bought a house in Hawaii and had a house in Silicon Valley that was on the outskirts with lots of nature around, beautiful place. And I bought this place right across the street from one of the best beaches in Maui. And my life was just flying back and forth between two almost utopias, right? If you can imagine when it would be a little too cold in San Francisco, I'd just hop a plane and I'd be out on the beach, you know, same day. Uh, nice, also I, nice. yeah, oh, it's so nice. Look, I recommend it for anybody that can get it. But I'll also tell you that after five years, it got boring. I really felt like my mind wasn't being stimulated anymore. And so I got anxious to get back into business. And I thought I'd dabble in technology. Maybe I would sit on a board. Maybe I'd mentor an entrepreneur. Maybe I'd make an investment in a company. And I thought it'd be in computers, software, internet, the things that I really understood, apps, IT. But as luck would have it or serendipity
0: or, yeah, you're pointing at me. Wait, before you get there, let pause. I want you to go back. You've learned to navigate through, you had a remarkable life, opportunities, not just you were given opportunities, but you seized opportunities. Mm -hmm. You learned to take everything, and you weren't just successful because you were there. You were successful because you worked hard. You're successful yeah. because you continue to develop yourself and the organizations you were with for yeah. the listeners. What are a couple of things that you learned during this first 40 years of your life, working within a corporation that really helped you move forward? Like a couple of tips you can give to the listeners. Say, okay, you're in this position now. This is what you should be looking for. This is what you should be doing. Like, what are things you can give yeah. them tips to better okay. their life? So I'm going to tell you two
1: things that I really use
0: around AGT
1: to make a great team here, I think that they may be helpful. I don't think that everybody gets the kind of opportunities in life that I got. I think being born in America, lower middle class in the late 50s is like automatically, you know, sort of, you're born on second base, let's say, or first base, you're already on base at least. It's very important to try to figure out, okay, where can you fit all these principles in your life? But I think there are some basic things that hold true and that could help almost anybody. So let me go ahead and outline those. So number one, brains are the most important thing. And you don't have to be born with brains, just like you don't have to be born with incredible arm strength and muscles in your body. You can exercise them and you can make them better. Sure, you can have a natural advantage or disadvantage. But it's the amount of work you put into your head that will determine over time where it gets to. And that's Love one it. thing that Love I would it. tell everybody is that you need to be intellectually curious. You need to think of education as being important. You need to have a basic understanding and ability to import information from around you and use logic to fit it together. And that only comes with work. Okay, then the next thing is is it's a competitive world out there. So unless you just happen to be born in a billionaire family, laziness isn't going to get you there. It's going to take hard work. It's a competitive world and you're going to have to be in the top third to survive or to do well, let's say. And so that means you have to work hard. You have to have a good work ethic. You need to be willing to just deal with what life throws you and just keep processing it. Then the next thing I think is sort of a secret sauce that some people will get a chance to access every once in a while, and that's called passion. What do you love? It's so much easier to pursue goals if you love them, right? If you really believe in them, they touch something core in you, right? And I think that everybody would find that your personality and your genetics are open to giving you a good feeling from so many different things, even something as simple as helping others because there is a scientific phenomena called helper's high. And I guarantee you that Mother Teresa was just a drug addict on what it created in her head, (laughs) right? I mean, and I think she's happier than any billionaire on earth, right? And she had nothing. So, you know, there's such a spectrum over which you can get a good feeling that things that you can fall in love with. And I would ask you to fall in love with your fellow human beings, and that would be really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's funny you, you know, brought her up too, because I always love one thing she said that stuck out to me is Did you ever hear her talking about? I'll never go to an anti-war rally, but I'll go. No, to I a never, peace never rally? heard that. No. Yeah, her the way she filtered things, the positive energy. She won't go to an anti-war rally, but I'll go to a peace route. Right, because the whole mentality is different. You know, an anti-war rally is like I hate this, I hate that, but a peace rally is let's love each other, let's figure this out, let's work together. It's mm-hmm. that whole paradigm shift. So yeah. That she was just a good oh. illustration, sorry. It's a good il-
1: she's a good illustration in two ways, right? That yes, what you're saying sort of relates to my first point of that doing good feels good, right? Helping other people feels good. We have genetic expression that when we help others and we see that we're lifting other people up, we get a good feeling ourselves. And we can even explain what that is. It is serotonin and dopamine levels in our brain. That get activated by something that is just wired within us. Now, not everybody has that because it can be stamped out in childhood <laughs> and your experience can re-regulate those genes so that you can't feel it anymore. So you know, I can't guarantee that everybody will find that, but I would hope that people would try to find that aspect of themselves and realize that there's a lot of joy that can come out of that that they might be missing if they don't understand that or they don't manage to find it. But there is the magic ingredient and it goes back to Mother Teresa again she was smart. Come on. I mean, the lady was smart. Was she hardworking? I say so. Was she passionate? Yeah, that is the multiplier. You have those three things, you have potential to achieve greatness. Mother Teresa achieved greatness. I don't think anybody would argue with that. And, you know, she did it through those three things in my mind. And then the other part that I would add is leveraging the best in humanity. That is working with other human beings in groups that share your vision, that share your mission, and that have all those attributes, and that working together, a whole bunch of people that have the potential to achieve greatness can come together and have potential to achieve greatness as a collaboration. Now, that is now something like Apple or something like AGT the company that I'm working at right now, which to me is like Apple on steroids, quite frankly. So that's one of the things that I've learned is brains, hard work, passion, find what you care about, find joy in your work somehow. And it's also very important that you have skills and that you have some options. And so when you're young, it's very important to learn a lot of different things so that you have choices. So that when that brass ring comes around, you have the capability of grabbing it. And if you look at my life, You can call me the luckiest man on earth, but it isn't that I haven't had challenges and tragedies and crises that were very difficult to work through in my life that I survived. No, it's that there was this fundamental thing that I had, which was intellectual curiosity, a willing to just put one foot in front of the other and get to the other side of a chasm that opened up in front of me, and that I was passionate I found things that just inspired me that I just wanted to do. And I was loving doing them. And it was a great source of sort of validation and good feeling that kept me going in the darkest, hardest times of my life. And then it's all about having the talent that comes from those three things to see brass rings that will feed that passion, right? But you can only get those brass rings if you're capable. So, if you're gonna not get an education, if you're not gonna be intellectually curious, if you're gonna think that you're born with all the smarts you're ever gonna have, you may miss a lot of brass rings. You may miss a lot of opportunities because you can't generate that open mind that can spot a unique place for you where you can bring your specialness to something and use that to contribute to a really great outcome. And a great outcome will be incredibly fulfilling.
0: Yeah, and that's a great transition to where we're going now because you've achieved in your 40s something that most people will never achieve or striving to achieve that retirement, that wealth, that two beautiful homes. And then you're like, I'm bored. So Mm -hmm. talk to us from there. So you're there. You're like, I still got plenty of life left in me. What am I doing? And then tell us about how God guides your journey. Uh, This is just when you pointed to
1: me, you got me right back on track again because you wanted to take that little side thing. And we are right back. So there I am on the beach in Hawaii and I'm thinking about, okay, what's my next move? You know, I'm bored. And I think, okay, I'm going to dabble in technology. And I start putting out feelers for people that are maybe looking for small investments or looking for a board member or looking for a mentor. Even started looking at, are there businesses that I could start where I wouldn't have to be active 16 hours a day in it to make them successful? Didn't want to go back to the grind. I just wanted to... Have enough intellectual stimulation that I wouldn't have a boring retirement anymore. And so, as luck would have it, or serendipity, or whatever you want to attribute it to, a guy named Roscoe Brady at NIH who shared me viral vectors. And it was just lucky that he was a super smart guy on the cutting edge of something called gene therapy. I didn't know this when I met him, but he was a globally recognized drug developer. He cured something called Gaucher's disease, a deadly disease. His drug had been outlicensed by NIH to Genzyme. They were selling a billion dollars a year in something he pioneered called enzyme replacement that would mitigate a genetic defect that led to early death and suffering, right? I mean, he was right in my sweet spot, that he was just passionately engaged with solving medical problems, and he'd done it and then he went back enzyme replacements really painful you have to take a shot every single day for an enzyme you're missing in your bloodstream but it worked because if these people who had gaucher's disease didn't get that enzyme every day their organs would swell up with lipids that they couldn't process and as the organs got larger and larger they would get distended but then eventually the organs would malfunction and they would die from all of the built up lipids inside of them and so he found The key thing that they were missing and he found a way to grow it in bioreactors and he found a way to get it into their body where it would be effective. And voila, he brought a cure to so many people. So he went back and said, there's got to be a simpler way. And he started researching viral vectors. And that's a really simple concept. I mean, you don't have to be a molecular biologist to understand this, but viruses have been essentially bringing in little snippets of DNA right? DNA is the code of your body. DNA exists in the nucleus of every single cell, and it's the recipe, the instruction set. It is the operating system that tells that cell what to do. And the viruses can come in, and they can dock with a cell, and they can drop information into that cell that looks just like the messages that come out of the nucleus of the cell that run all the operations of the cell, and they can hijack that cell to do anything. All right. And what do they normally hijack it to do? You know, COVID, all it does is it drops in instructions that tells your cells how to make more COVID. And and so the cells literally stop doing what they normally do. They just make COVID virus particles and then they eventually explode because they have no resources left. They haven't been doing anything else. So they crack apart. It's called lysing. And then they infect nearby cells. Unfortunately, you have a very sophisticated immune system that detects it, usually will get on top of it before it does so much damage that it kills you or damage that's permanent. But these are all things that you have to worry about with COVID, by the way, is that even if you stay on top of it, even if you're a young kid and you get past it, there may be some change in your body that might come out later that might be dangerous. So it's worth avoiding.
0: Even really? Like, well, go back to that because like my daughter tested positive for COVID. My wife, I, and son tested negative. So mm-hmm. you're saying that should we be keeping an eye on her or like explain that to the is, listeners? Yeah. Okay. So here again, I'm getting my
1: PhD in molecular biology and genetics right now by working at AGT because I am with great PhDs who answer all my questions because I'm so curious. And I think sometimes people mistake me as a doctor or as a PhD, you know, in a particular science. Okay. So I am not, but I do have an opinion. I think it's more educated than, you know, just completely naive. But here's, what I'm hearing is that they don't know yet, right? Scientists will eventually crack COVID completely, just like we've cracked HIV. We understand HIV so well, it'll blow your mind. We actually now use HIV as a way to cure other diseases. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. Yeah, it's crazy good. It's crazy good. And COVID, the problem is, is we haven't totally cracked it yet. We don't understand every aspect of it. We're still establishing basic parameters. And in some ways, we're not making the investments we really need to study it on a scientific basis and to leverage the information as we find it to protect ourselves. And I would ask everybody that they listen to scientists right now because scientists are reading the universe's Encyclopedia Britannica and they're really trying to help us. And so Tony Fauci doesn't have a dog in this fight. I think he actually is just trying to interpret the science for us and give us the best input he can. He's not claiming he knows everything. As a matter of fact, that's one of the problems is because he doesn't feel like he knows everything. He doesn't come across with a my way or the highway and I know everything way that we like to hear sometimes from people that are in authority. What he does say is this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And that's very important to listen to as a smart person. So what do we don't know? We don't actually know yet where COVID does most of its growing and damage in your body yet. But it may, think about what, some of the symptoms of a COVID infection. Some of the symptoms are loss of taste and loss of smell. That means it's in your nervous system and you're muted if you're trying to talk to me.
0: No, I was just going to say that was totally ironic because right when you did that, you're talking about COVID. I was totally joking. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I rub my nose. Yeah. I'm just like, uh, it's warm in here and I just, my nose starts to run when it gets too warm. So it's weekend in the office and the air conditioning in a class A space, of course, is turned off. I got to figure out how to get a little air conditioning sometimes because I like to work weekends. But that's the thing about COVID. We don't understand everything about it. So don't panic about your daughter. No, no. But don't take it for granted that just because she got over it, that it didn't matter. It might matter. All right. And that's why it's incumbent on all of us to stop the spread of this thing until there is a well tested. Completely proven from a scientific standpoint, vaccine that we can take that we know won't hurt us, but we know will give us an immunity to it, because it is possible to do a vaccine. It may not be possible to do it in the time frames that politicians want, or they tell us it will be done, or that they even force through. So the key is to not ignore the science on any of these things. And I live in a bunch of all these scientists, and I listen to them every day and I talk to them and I ask questions. I understand how confusing it is out there. But let me tell you, we don't know everything about COVID yet. We only know that if everybody wears a mask, it slows the spread. We know that for sure. That is almost a magic bullet. All right. If we social distance, that helps even more. If we don't touch our face, we don't pick it up from surfaces and we're unlikely to infect ourselves. And you'd be amazed. There are some stats now from beauty salons that show that even infected Beauticians who wear a mask when their customers are wearing masks. And I'm just talking cloth things, that they rarely transmit the disease. Whereas we know for a fact, in that kind of close proximity, that the opportunity to pass the infection would be exceedingly high. So don't ignore what the scientists are saying. The head of the CDC used to be the lead scientific advisor on our HIV cure program at AGT. All right, he knows viruses. He's a great guy. He has a letter from Mother Teresa on his office wall. He's met wow. every Pope in the last, I don't know how many years. He is a guy who is a scientist and a humanitarian and a highly, highly religious person who just believes in God. And it was one of the things that inspired me to try to figure that out and reconcile it with seeing him, right? So anyway, uh, that's awesome. but he's, that's- you know, I think he has your best interest in mind, but he's in a very baffling situation in some ways because he lives within a political system that has a lot of conflicting uh, agendas right now, right? And a lot of lack of cooperation and a lot of, what do you call it? Uh, zero-sum gaming, you know, winners and losers and that's it. There's no compromises. There's no way for us all to get lifted up in the yeah. current discourse. You know it, you see it, right? So people that want to do good within that environment find themselves muzzled a little bit, stifled.
0: And so- We're led by politicians, not patriots. They're ruining progress because they have agendas for their political party, not for the better interests of the human race.
1: And they're stopping important information to get to us so that we can make informed, smart decisions, right? Because it may be in their political interest to go ahead and somehow mute that type of input. And so it's tough. I have an opinion on all this stuff, but I realize how much intellectual processing it takes in my head in order to see the situation in a clear way and to resolve it in my mind and to make my own even personal decisions and even to have a conversation like this. I just wasn't born with this whole idea. I had to think about it a lot. I had to meditate on it a lot. And so here I am. But I would ask you and your listeners to give my good friend, Bob Redfield, The benefit of the doubt if you see anything contrary to this but he is a humanist and he is a lover of mankind and in his heart he just wants to keep us safe he wants to do the right thing and i don't think we hear him clearly every day because also he works for the boss and he can't do good if he's not in a position to do good and you know what it's like when you disagree with the boss right now
0: right yeah yeah and again The question that you're answering that I was asking is when I heard about COVID, it seems like it was not a natural virus and it seems like there's been some tweaking to it. So my question was exactly that before my daughter even got it was once you get it, does your body just kick it out and it's done? Do you build a tolerance up to it or is it something that's going to lay dormant and kick back on? That's why I was interested that when yeah, you said that, it we, triggered it. I didn't want to get derailed from our conversation where no, you're going. Okay. But I mean,
1: we can go anywhere. It's important. It. It's oh,
0: important yeah. today. I mean, this is interesting stuff. Yeah.
1: I mean, look, this will be relevant for another year, year and a half, by the way, and maybe even beyond that.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking The aspirations <laughs> of getting
1: this thing cured or controlled within six months or within 18 months, even the 18-month goal is highly aspirational. And so this is relevant, it's going to be relevant for a while, there's nothing wrong with discussing this. We don't know a lot of the questions that you're asking, but here's some of the things that we have strong evidence about, and here's something that you should learn about science when you're interpreting what scientists say, and that is that nothing in science is considered fact, it's only theory, right? And the theory only holds as long as it's not disproven, and theories are established by experimentation. That can be repeated by other people where they can get the same result and that logic would allow you to derive conclusions from the experimental data. That's why Bob Redfield and our scientists and Tony Fauci live in such a fuzzy world. That's not a simple thing to do, right? There are no absolutes in science. It's a theory of gravity. It's a theory of evolution, right? Nobody who's a true scientist goes and tells you that we understand everything even about gravity or about evolution. And that's the thing. When you're sitting on moving ground, it's hard to sound like an absolute authority. And we have to be tolerant of that as we listen to them. They're telling us what they know best right now. So here's what I can tell you. There is very strong evidence that this is not, I repeat, not an engineered virus. This was not created and foisted on the world by man. It was created and foisted on the world by nature. This happens constantly in nature. And the more that humans spread across the planet, we get exposed to more and more animals in their natural environment that we've never been to before. And we get exposed to a bunch of new diseases. And COVID evolved from previous versions of the SARS virus. And you can see exactly where it came from. And it does not look like it was manipulated in a lab. It looks like it was isolated in a lab. And it may have escaped from a lab. So it's not, I can't promise you that it wasn't human error that somehow released it. And that if you want to believe in a conspiracy theory, you might say, hmm, they're covering up, but they know exactly who the guy was who let it out. And maybe that guy was a really bad person who hated Wuhan. But the point is, is it's just a virus. It doesn't have a country. It doesn't have a conscience. All it has is the mantra of a virus, which is spread and replicate myself. And it is relentless. And this is where nature, again, remember I said, reality happens at the nexus of nature and human nature. And if human nature can't embrace what we understand or don't understand about the nature of this virus, then it will devastate us until we learn, because it is relentless. And what's passing around it? Very high levels in the United States. And you can see examples around the world where they have taken certain policy actions that have contained it more and they are able to return to more normalcy than we are right now. And they live under less fear. There are lots of things that the federal government could do. All right. We are still the most powerful country on earth. We are still the richest and we are still the best, in my mind, in terms of the diversity that we can bring to any, all of these problems and the expertise and the institutions and the researchers and the doctors and all this stuff. But it won't work if we don't listen to them. It won't work if we don't action their stuff. It won't work if we don't take national policies to deal with a national problem. You can't break it down into 50 small state national problems because the highways just connect us. And so you've got to deal with it, at least at our border. And really what you need to do is you need to join together with the whole world that's threatened on this level, and you need to find a way to globally contain this. And while we're not managing to contain it here, what's happening is the rest of the world is finding that we are a center of high levels of infection that they don't want moving back into their space anymore. And so they've built a wall around us. Ironically, the only country that still lets us in that's around us is Mexico you know you can't go to Canada now. You can't go to Europe. We don't have necessarily something where we say Europeans can't come here or Canadians can't come here. And in fact, they're not as big a threat to us. What I'm getting at is don't take anything for granted. Act on the best scientific information you can find. Think it through. Use your logic and try to support things that would sort of bring us all together into the best collaboration that could lift us all up. And COVID could be a major learning experience about how liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans and independents can work together to defeat a force of nature, the most powerful thing on earth. And where did it come from? God, right? Wasn't foisted on us as a punishment for anything. No, God created the mechanism Viruses mutate because of the universe. The universe is full of gamma radiation. Viruses have problems when they transcribe in our body and they make their own mutations. And then our body becomes a place where it is a evolutionary thing where the viruses that become stronger live and the ones that become weaker die off. And then a new virus is made. So we shouldn't be thinking about the guy that foisted this on us, even if there is somebody or the government or anything like that. We should be thinking about how do we fight this? Because here's another thing about the industry that I'm in. The idea of making engineered viruses will become easier over time because the tools are getting better for modifying DNA,
0: including modifying DNA in viruses. So let's talk about that. How did you go from a computer guy to a biology guy who's solving these types of problems after you met Dr. Brady? Okay. So Dr. Brady tells me about viral vectors. You know, a
1: lot of the other stuff I had to derive in my head from what I could remember from 10th grade biology, the last time I did anything in biology. And what he said is that you can take viruses now and you can essentially crack them open and you can remove the DNA information or the RNA, sort of the genetic coding that When a virus attaches to your cell, it drops into the cell to hijack the cellular machinery. It's like a virus on your computer. It's not zeros and ones. It's ACTG, the nucleotides that code all of your DNA. Those four symbols represent in the proper order every gene in your body. And if they're in the proper order, your cell will make a gene product according to that proper order. It'll execute the instruction. And viruses evolve to bring in genes that actually instruct the cell to do a very complex thing it needs to make a copy of the information that's inside the virus then it has to make a shell for the virus and then it has to make what's called a packaging signal something that will attract the shell together with the viral instructions that dna that we call it a vector and package it and spit it out somehow export it from the cell or just leave it in the cell until the cell is completely out of materials and the cell falls apart and release it to the rest of the body. That's pretty complicated. Normally it takes at least three genes in every virus. All right. So we can crack them open. And in, in fact, what he was working on is he was cracking open HIV. Is that scary? It should be, right? HIV was like when I was in college, that was in the late 70s and early 80s. I mean, that was a very scary subject, HIV. But now we know it so well. We can literally split open HIV and break it into all of its parts. And we can take the parts that do the things that we like and get rid of the parts that are dangerous. So we get rid of its ability to replicate. So we make a new viral particle that can carry one dose of something, some genetic information, but it can't, it has no way to replicate itself. So one particle can only infect one cell. It becomes like a tiny little pill. We also can go ahead and take the parts of the vector inside, the genetic information that tells your cell how to integrate HIV with your genome. And we can leave that in there, but we can chop out HIV, the AIDS genome. So we get rid of all the instructions that are in there about how to make AIDS and how to make you sick. And we end up with what we call a three cassette vector. We have three places where we can place genes and we can have that vector reliably carry that and bolt it on to your genome. Now, why would we want to do that? Well, just like updates on your computer, this mechanism of bringing in new code segments can improve the health of your computer, and in fact, it can improve your health as well. If we bring in a code that updates your DNA for better health, you could get a health benefit out of it. Now, we don't understand every instruction in your body and how everything works. We are the most sophisticated computer network on Earth. There's a trillion organic computers called cells that collaborate to make you. I mean there's a lot of stuff we need to learn in there and it didn't come with a manual. It's all discovery.
0: That's just what we know about. There could be even more.
1: The point is that we're discovering how all these things work. We know that your cells communicate with each other electrically. That sounds a lot like a computer, right? You have an Ethernet connection and the internet and you know that's how they talk to each other And, and that's how we as cells in an organization now talk to each other. We're doing it right now. Right but they can also communicate with chemicals. They can communicate with physical bumping. We'll find other things eventually, but that's the most sophisticated computer and we have to discover everything about them, including the instruction set, what genes affect what gene products and what gene products combine with other gene products to do things in your body. But once we understand all that stuff, we now have rudimentary tools for changing your DNA. That viral vector could bring in a new gene. So what's the most obvious thing you would do with a new gene? you'd replace a broken gene. The most obvious thing to do with a viral vector carrying a gene would be to replace a gene that's in you that's broken or missing, right? What's that called? It's called an inherited disease. If your mom and your dad had, everybody's got two alleles of every gene, that means you have two copies in every cell, and your dad and your mom could have one defective copy, and they wouldn't even know it. And then they get together, and both of them donate half of their DNA to you, and you might get two defective copies, and as a result, you might be missing one gene, or you might have a malfunctioning gene that doesn't make the right protein or enzyme, and everything in your body is necessary. There are 7,000 known diseases like that. Monogenic loss of function disorders, it means that a missing gene product is what causes the disease. Could be just irritating lactose intolerance could be considered a monogenic disorder. You're not making enough lactase and so you're milk resistant. Or it could be something else that you can't digest that's more serious like phenylketonuria. You can't digest animal proteins because they have too much phenylalanine in them and you can't break it down. So if you have phenylketonuria, you can never eat animal protein, not just milk, but you can't eat eggs. You can't drink mother's milk when you're born. You can't eat uh, fish, beef, pork, none of those things, right? Because they all have phenylalanine. You can't drink a Diet Coke, it would kill you. It's got phenylalanine in it. So that's more serious. Or a broken gene could mean that your spine never forms normally. You're born with spinal muscular atrophy. You never learn to hold your head up on your own, roll over, sit up, any of those things. Eventually, you don't have enough muscles around your core to even breathe on your own. And you die in a ventilator, usually at around age four. Now, those are all just one missing broken gene in some place where you need it. Let me cut to the chase here. That spinal muscular atrophy that I'm talking about, that's the worst thing that you could ever hear your kid has, right? But a company called Avexis found a cure for that where they cracked open a virus and they put the missing gene in there and they give a dose of $1.5 million worth of these little tiny pills, viral particles they're called, but they look like viruses, but they're non-replicating into a baby, it restores that gene in their spine, and they grow up normally. Imagine that, right? Amazing. I mean, talk about a miracle. There's another cure for a monogenic disease. Leber's congenital amaurosis is where there's a gene missing in the eye where the light-sensitive proteins wear out over time. So they're born sighted. They can see normally, and then you notice around five or six or seven or eight that they have trouble seeing and then by their early teens, they're blind. Well, that's now curable. A company called Spark took another form of adeno-associated virus, AAV, and they put the missing gene in that, and they put a dose in each eye, and I kid you not, blind people are seeing. Does that sound like a miracle? Yeah. Is that sounds, yes. Is they one see? shot, and they're seeing? They're seeing, yeah. There was an open mic at the FDA committee meeting, And the head of the committee, while they were trying to decide whether to approve the drug, he said, This is less like a committee meeting and more like a party because they were reading cases from the small clinical study where blind people were seeing again. I mean, you just can't help but be excited by that, right? You can't hold that back, right? Nature, it's a force of nature, right? Even our desire, right? We can understand that, wow, curing blindness, who could be against that? So, anyway, they were seeing results where. Kids that were blind were now hitting baseballs. Can you imagine how hard that would be? That people that were blind were now driving cars. They, got, they went out and got their license. That's amazing. So there's two examples of the blind are now seeing, cripples are now walking. It's only a matter of time before the lepers are all healed. But also, <laughs> I believe we'll send radiation and chemotherapy the way of bloodletting and leeches. Because now that we can take this Ability to modify your cells for better health, that we can put new genes in there. We don't have to stop at correcting errors in your genes, okay, places where you're missing something and overriding them with a viral vector. That's what most of the drugs are. We can improve the operation of cells that aren't doing their job quite well enough. And that's the key to HIV. HIV only gets into your body because the HIV viron. Has evolved the capability of grabbing onto a T cell and infecting it and making it part of the infection. The thing that is the worst thing about HIV that, in some ways, we have leveraged for the best things in our company is that the genes that it's carrying, if it finds a cell to attach to, it will actually transmit those genes and install them permanently in the DNA of that cell. And for the rest of the existence of that cell, It'll be making HIV. Well, guess what? Are the first T cells to arrive at the infection when HIV enters your body? What's that? HIV specific T cells. There's a specific class of T cell called a helper T cell, CD4 positive T cell, sometimes called a CD4 cell. And you have an infinite diversity of these things in your body for every cold you've never seen. You have them for COVID. You have them for diseases that haven't been on the planet for you know thousands of years. Most of the T-cells that you're born with will die with you, never having seen the pathogen that they were there to protect you from. Some of them actually are clearing small amounts of cancer from your body so that it doesn't turn into big cancer. Your immune system is incredibly sophisticated, incredibly diverse, and it has T-cells which are absolutely right for fighting HIV, but HIV is a temporary advantage over them right? And we might evolve eventually where the HIV viron can no longer infect that HIV T cell. But now that we can modify the DNA in that T cell, we can modify it in ways that we understand that make it impervious to HIV. And then what does the HIV T cell do when it arrives at the infection? Instead of being infected, the T cell becoming infected by the viron, the HIV pathogen, the T cell, since it can't be infected, does its job and kills that thing. And then that T cell actually goes on to signal the rest of your body to mount a, what's called an immune cascade, an immune reaction that involves not just that CD4 cell, but CD8 cytotoxic cells that will look for infected cells in your body and antibodies that will slow down the virus so that you can get on top of it. Well, it turns out that HIV is a very fragile virus, it moves very, very slowly in your body. A cold moves much faster. So your immune system. If it's protected from that initial infection, it can prevent HIV from getting a hold of your body. And they've proven this a number of different ways. One is that there were women that were born, and men I suppose too, in Northern Europe that were working in as sex workers in AIDS infected villages and not getting HIV. And they were just, how could this be? And they went and they. Looked at their blood under a microscope, and what they discovered was that uh, these people that were mysteriously not getting HIV were missing a receptor that's on most of our T cells called chemokine receptor number five. Very technical, you don't need to know that. But think of it as a door handle. They discovered that HIV grabs onto two anchor points on a T cell in order to bind tightly with the membrane and infect that cell. And one of those anchor points is CCR5 for the most common strains of HIV. And without that anchor point, this viron can't get a grip on the T cell well enough to infect it, and the T cell detects it and kills it and starts the immune cascade and brings more of its friends out into the bloodstream to fight any other HIV that might be there. Isn't that amazing? So we know what that defect, and it's actually a genetic defect. You know, it's like 0.3% of the Northern European population does not have CCR5 on their T-cells and they are immune to the most common strains of HIV. What's the downside of not having CCR5? It turns out that it's useful for T-cells to crawl through tissue and so they get higher levels of skin infections and fungal infections on the skin. So bacteria and fungus can be a bigger problem for them. But hey, it's not a bad trade-off. I'd rub a few lotions on a fungus or a bacteria in order to be immune to HIV.
0: Yeah, 100%, especially if that's their trade.
1: <laughs> yeah, if that's their trade.
0: Yeah, no, this will work on
1: anybody. You <laughs> we don't, don't have wanna, to be, we in don't wanna, don't have to be in sex working across. to take advantage of this or to be interested in this podcast. So, exactly, exactly. We're not this advocating is useful to sex everyone.
0: trafficking in any way.
1: Yeah, we're not endorsing any particular careers on this podcast. All right, so the question became, can you give that kind of superpower to somebody that isn't born with it, and has HIV, right? So there are HIV-infected people all over the place. There's like 37 million people they're estimating on Earth with HIV. And one of the consequences of HIV is you get more cancers, and one of those cancers is leukemia, and the leukemias can become acute. In other words, you are going to die. So you go into the doctor and they say, there's no way for us to knock it back with radiation or chemotherapy, and your only choice left is a bone marrow transplant. You have so many B-cell leukemias or lymphomas, the tumor burden so high that it's going to overtake you. And the only way to prevent that is, you know what they do? They irradiate your body and they eliminate your entire immune system, including your bone marrow, which is what grows your immune system. It's what replaces your immune system when your immune system cells die off at that moment, you have no protection from anything. Like literally the slightest pathogen will kill you. You've got sort of induced bubble boy disease. These kids that are born without an immune system, we have to live in plastic and one pathogen can kill them, which incidentally has been cured with gene therapy. I'll get back to that later. So the bubble boy disease has actually got a cure now and it comes from gene therapy. But anyway, Some very clever doctors in Berlin thought of this idea. They get a patient who's HIV positive, and he's got acute leukemia, and so he's going to die. And the only option left is a bone marrow transplant. And they think, what if we got a donor bone marrow from somebody that's immune to HIV, who has this CCR5 depletion? And what would that do to this guy's HIV? Long story short, it gave him a functional cure. He no longer needed antiretroviral medication. His T cells were able, the new T cells that were born out of that transfer, were able to control HIV in his body and keep it below the levels that he would be able to get it to with antiretroviral therapy alone. And so he was what's called functionally cured. He could not get AIDS. He could not transmit it to others. And he could not even be reinfected by strains of HIV that require that CCR5 receptor, which is most of them.
0: Wow. And that's because the bone marrow is giving that gene it needed. That information. When you transfer bone marrow
1: from somebody, you get whatever the makeup was of the genetics of their bone marrow. And if you transfer from somebody that's got two broken genes that are supposed to make CCR5 so they don't make that door handle, when your immune system regrows from that bone marrow, it comes out with broken CCR5 genes in every cell. And so it's missing the door handle. Your genes
0: decide everything about the cell. Now, how long does that take? If you get a bone marrow transplant, what's the cycle for your body to regenerate like that?
1: You know, I don't know for sure. I've never been through it myself and I've never been close to somebody who's been through it. Fortunately, first of all, it's incredibly traumatic. I mean, the radiation and then the vulnerability to infection and all those things six out of 10 people that get bone marrow transplants die from that. So
0: yes, it's super hard on you. It's
1: super hard on you, but recovering from it, I don't know, it's probably takes you, you know, to fully recover months, but you grow back your immune system relatively quickly and you grow back, not your immune system, but you grow back an immune system that was compatible donor, right? But had this one genetic mutation. And so that's what's going on. And They end up, you know, there's been another example since then that they commonly refer to as the London patient, but they redid the experiment and they got the same result, which makes sense, right? And they've been trying to do it. They had done like eight or 10 other bone marrow transplants. They had never gotten it for a couple of reasons. One is people died from the bone marrow transplant, so that's a failure. And then the other thing is, is that they would get a new immune system, but HIV would still come back. And it looks like a lot of that might be because there are... Certain mutations of HIV strains, so to speak, or sometimes called clades, that don't require that CCR5 to get in. They hold onto something else called CXCR4 and CD4, and that's what they use to get in. And so, if you're missing CCR5, it doesn't stop those clades, right? It doesn't stop those strains. So, they may have just regrown a small amount of HIV that was hidden in their body that was a different strain of HIV than their main strain, which was R five.
0: And so, but what you're doing with American Gene Technologies is you're able to extract and you're looking at which strains they have, and then you're taking the quote unquote virus and putting the new program in and attacking that exactly strain. That's well, exact sort of strain. it's, it's actually right? better than
1: what you're describing. So what we're doing is we look at these people that have that are HIV positive now and we say how can we make it like a successful Berlin or London patient? How can we make their immune system look like that? Or how can we make their immune system look like one of those lucky people that was just born with immunity, right? Because if we could do that, we would expect them to be functionally cured, just like the Berlin patient and the London patient. And we know so much about HIV. We know that one thing we want to do is strip off that door handle, right? The CCR5s. That's all the Berlin patient got, that's all the London patient got, and that was enough because they only had R5 strains of HIV in their body, and now they're controlling it. All right, so we think, okay, that's one thing you want to do, but what about the ones that don't get in through R5? Well, it turns out we can put a virus, okay, we can crack open HIV and scoop out AIDS and throw it away. Now we have an empty stealth bomber that we call lentivirus, and it can carry a number of different genes that can either install new gene products or that can create what are called short-interrupting RNAs, or short hairpin RNAs, which have the effect of shutting down other genes that exist in the cell. So one of the siRNAs that we put in there is against CCR5s. It shuts off the expression of the CCR5 gene, and what happens to the cells? They lose their CCR5. They lose the door handle, and if that's the only HIV that's in the body, it can't get into cells anymore. And we focus on just the HIV T-cells because they're the ones that will be attracted to HIV virons and cells that are budding HIV virons and that will be the first ones that arrive there and kill the cell or kill the viron before it can get anywhere else in your body. So the important thing is to find all the HIV protection that you have in your body and protect it against HIV entry. So just stripping CCR5 is enough to protect it against most strains of HIV. But then we put in other synthetic genes that create these short, interrupting strands of RNA against genes that come in with HIV. So we understand from studying HIV, what are all the strains of HIV that we know of today? We can find common regions in critical HIV genes, AIDS genes, that if you knock them out, if you shut them off, it can't produce virons anymore. It can't destroy the cell. And so we go ahead and put SIRNAs in. Why do we do that? Because we can pick conserved regions that aren't just R5 strains, but all the strains of HIV. And so we have knockouts to critical components of X4 tropic strains that would get past the CCR5 protection. And if it gets in, it doesn't matter. We still attack it with those SIRNAs. And if it's pre-infected, if there's a cell that already has HIV in it, that SIRNA will cause those genes to be knocked down, it's called. In other words, they can't express so they can no longer function in the cell. And so the cell is essentially healed by those siRNAs because those three genes can't work together to make new virons. And so we're shutting off HIV. It's like a triple protection. And we can do it in an 11-day cell process where we draw 400-milliliter leukopact from any HIV infected individual who's well controlled on antiretroviral therapy. What does that mean? They've been taking a suppressive therapy, a chemotherapeutic that suppresses virus long enough that what has happened? Their normal immune system has come back out of their bone marrow. Their normal immune system includes HIV specific T cells. They're still no good against HIV because they're infectable, but we can pull them out, find them modify them so they're uninfectable by HIV. We can culture them up so that we have like a billion of them, more than you need. And then we can put them back into your body. Now the first T cell that arrives at an infection, even if the infection's already in your body and it's a viral reservoir, buds, an HIV viron, these cells can come over and successfully kill that cell and kill that viron without becoming infected. And they can signal the immune system that the pathogen is there which builds the other layers of the immune system, the CD8 cytotoxic cells that not only can kill HIV, but they are what's called a degenerative response, which means that the CD8 cells that are created have random mutations in them, so they catch the random mutations in HIV. And it's all because these CD4-positive helper T cells detected it, and they're helper T cells that alert the CD8 system to start creating all of these clones in response. And then there's one more layer. It alerts your antibody system that it's there. And you start making antibodies against HIV. And so you start treating HIV in your body like the common cold. Your immune system is capable of clearing HIV like you can clear the common cold. And we think we can prove that in a human trial. We think that the evidence is there from the Berlin patient from people that are naturally immune to HIV, from the London patient, and we've actually made blood product from HIV-infected individuals that we have in a Petri dish, and we can challenge it with massive amounts of HIV and latently infected cells. Cells that are infected with HIV has a remarkable ability to clear itself. We think that an upcoming human trial will get a chance to see whether the cell product we made has enough clearing power And that our theory about how the immune system will react with those helper T cells being healthy and active against the chronic viral infection, we are hoping, we believe, you know, we think we have the logic behind it. So we have some level of confidence that this could happen. It's not a guarantee, but we think it should be able to control the viremia from then on without antiretroviral therapy, just like the Berlin patient. Somebody would be cured.
0: Yeah. Now I was just going to say to translate it to the listeners, some of you are listening and it's getting a little deep, but what Jeff's saying is essentially, and I don't want to use the wrong term, but what the layman would say, layperson would say is a cure to HIV. I mean, they're exactly. going to, to spin this yep. into a cure for HIV. Their preliminary testing has worked. Their blood testing has worked. And now talk about this. This is a big deal. You don't have to go long into it, But you just got FDA approval to try these human trials. Yep. And that is massive. So the FDA has looked at this data, looked at the science behind it, and they're saying, yeah, we believe in this enough that we're going to let you do human testing. That just doesn't happen every day. So talk about that.
1: That's huge. I mean, it takes a tremendous amount of expertise at the FDA to even fully understand gene and cell therapy. I mean, that's cutting edge science. And then you have to understand HIV on top of that to even read our proposal anyway, they read it. They asked us a bunch of questions, a bunch of good questions. We filled in the blanks that they thought needed to be filled in, and when was it exactly that we got clearance? I should it's sort of like a red letter day, but it was like <laughs> a week ago, yeah a week and a half ago, we get a letter from the f d a and they say you've satisfied our questions and We're allowing you to step forward into the proposed phase one clinical trial where we can now take this blood product and put it back in to patients and see if it works. I mean, it's just huge. Up until now, it's all theory. This is the proof in the pudding.
0: Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's what's fantastic and amazing and exciting is this is going on right now. Mm -hmm. As you're listening, not Jeff, as you the listener, our friend. I'd say your first name, but I don't know it, you know. We're all <laughs> over the world. But as you're listening right now, it's happening. And Jeff, from where we are today sitting here looking at each other on this screen to when the testing begins, I know there's no exact time frame, but roughly what are we talking about before this gets real? Like you got a real human in a real chair and it's going down.
1: So we think we're going to start recruiting patients late September or early October because the FDA part of their approval is they approve a clinical protocol and a lot of paperwork that goes to the doctors, a lot of procedures, a lot of information that go to potential trial participants to make sure that everybody is doing this from a standpoint of knowledge and competency, even the patient that they know everything that they're signing up for. It's very important stuff to get from there that approval. So we just agreed on the protocol and they made some modifications to it for things that they thought were required for minimizing the risk on patients. And so we have to implement that in all the documentation. Most of it's done. And then we have to bring it out to, we have three trial sites that are already contracted and are agreed to do this. And we have to train their clinicians and we have to get all the materials out to them so that they can execute on that approved protocol. We already have all the materials banked. We have it in the freezer and we have a CMO called the Contract Manufacturing Organization that can take the blood draw from a patient and run it through an 11-day automated cell protocol in a benchtop unit that creates the cell product. The cell product is you take the 400 milliliters of blood and over 11 days, we isolate the HIV T cells, we modify them so they're immune to HIV, and we culture them up to a billion of those cells. What we think is sufficient for clearing your body of HIV or clearing the HIV-infected individual. And then that blood product actually has to go through a whole bunch of testing criteria before we can reinfuse it. That's what happens after it's modified and after it's approved as having been modified safely and free of pathogens and things like that. Then it can be reinfused into the patients. So we probably recruit our first patients in early october that should give us enough time to bring the clinical sites up to speed and bring in our first patient and then it will take probably about 90 days from the day we do the blood draw to when we reinfuse so we're hoping that we will reinfuse blood product by the end of the year would be the best case but early next year in january would be the first time we reinfuse that's when we get safety data because that's where you find out whether there is an adverse event that's serious from the infusion of the HIV T cells that have been modified. We've been thinking very, very deeply on this for a long, long time and thinking about safety and thinking about everything that can go wrong. And that's part of the clinical protocol is to identify all the things that you might see and tell you how to react to them, again, for safety. But we have as much confidence as you can have that it's safe. And now we have the FDA looking at it and saying that it meets their criteria of confidence, right, that we can give it a try. So we're very, very hopeful and we believe that the safety data will be good. That will be another gargantuan milestone, right? It does no harm or it doesn't appear to do any harm. The next thing is to find out, does it do any good? So we have secondary measurements of blood markers that will give us information about whether the cells are in the body doing what they're supposed to do, that they're healthy, that they're reacting normally, and that they're clearing HIV. We keep the HIV-infected individual on their antiretroviral therapy for added safety, but we can study their blood and we can see whether these cells are having an effect. And that may prove to the FDA, and it may prove to scientists in general, that this is having positive effect, those markers. Then we'll petition the FDA for a new study where we can re enroll patients that have taken this cell therapy who are still feeling fine and haven't shown adverse events in a treatment withdrawal called a treatment interruption. That's kind of the gold standard. Because when an HIV infected individual goes off their antiretroviral therapy, they rebound to full viremia in about 21 days, three weeks. That's pretty quick. Easy to see on a blood test. And so by seeing whether the cell product that we put in their body takes over the burden of suppressing the virus on its own during that 21 days and keeps it down at a low level, and we don't know how low that might be, but what we're hoping to see is that that level is just as low as with antiretroviral therapy. That would constitute a functional cure, right? If you could. Control your viremia without antiretroviral therapy. They would call you having remission. Durable remission would be if that lasts for a long time, and functional cure would be what we're aspiring to, a one-and-done treatment that protects you for the rest of your life without additional antiretroviral therapy. The HIV-infected individual would feel normal. They could never get AIDS. They could never transmit it to another human being, even through intimate contact and they could never be reinfected. That would be what's called a functional cure, and we think it's possible. And, you know, this this phase one human trial is our first opportunity to set a stake in the ground surrounding efficacy. And if we can get a handful of patients that are cured, then the whole industry will get behind it. In other words, it'll be obvious that the cure is the ultimate sort of treatment for HIV. It's to get them back to normal. We think that the cure that we've designed is cheaper than treating them for life because it has less side effects. Still could be a moneymaker for a pharma company that buys this product from us and commercializes it, but the overall cost of maintaining that patient for an insurance company might go from $100,000 a year to $500,000 one time, and I don't know what the real pricing will be, but it's conceivable that it could be sold for $500,000, the cure. And instead of the insurance companies paying $100,000 for 25 years, they would pay it of five years of that and be done with HIV. So this could be a great reduction in the cost of suppressing HIV in the community, right? But it's also an amazing increase in quality of life for HIV infected individuals because that chemotherapy that they take, that antiretroviral therapy that they take to suppress the virus is toxic. And it actually leads to a whole bunch of side effects, including daily things like nausea, diarrhea, headaches, and fatigue, to serious long-term effects of liver, kidney, heart disease, and extra cancers. That's why HIV patients are expensive for insurance companies, even though pharma companies are just delivering a $20,000 to $30,000 regimen of daily pills to suppress the virus, that's not good enough. It's not good enough because the suppressive therapy has some side effects that are very costly to quality of life and that get these people in and out of the doctors all the time and being very expensive to society and to insurance companies. So we think this is good overall. It's good for pharma companies. It's good for insurance companies. It's good for HIV-infected individuals. It's good for society. We think even at a high price like $500,000, there'd be a good reason for a lot of it to be delivered within insured first world nations. And then here's the kicker, because we think that over time, this is very much like technology curves that I've seen before. The capabilities of gene and cell therapy are doubling every year, and the cost is halving. It's actually faster than that. It's like Moore's law of computers. And what happens in that environment? You get more and more value at lower and lower costs. It's also very competitive because there's multiple ways to solve any problem and solve software. Just because Visicalc wrote the spreadsheet didn't mean that they dominated spreadsheets forever. You probably haven't even heard of VisiCal. They got wiped out by Lotus 123, which a lot of people haven't heard about because Microsoft wiped them out. Why? Because they were the most efficient programmer. And so what happens is, is it's a very competitive business. And so if you can go ahead and squeeze out costs, you will eventually deliver those savings to the patients. And this will creep out from primary markets, you know, first world nations, insured people to the whole world one day, just the same way that computers ended up essentially seeping out to the entire planet. There's so many people in Africa that never owned a landline, a telephone, a rotary phone, as you said, or even a touchstone phone. They certainly never even dreamed of owning a computer, and now they have a computer in their pocket that's more powerful than any computer on Earth in the 60s, or even in the 70s for that matter, and that attaches them to all the knowledge on the planet and communicates with everybody. And it's got so much value packed into this, but even though it's expensive, it's still worth it in Africa, and many people have these cell phones. That's the way gene and cell therapy will be in my mind. And I always like to tell that part of the story because I think a lot of people feel that this good will miss a lot of people on earth. I think it will take time to get to everybody on earth, but I don't think anybody's going to miss out on the gene and cell therapy revolution. What we have right now is something that's incredibly powerful. We can go down to the roots of your genetics and we can modify that for better health.
0: And And and, once you prove this model for mm -hmm. HIV the opportunities are endless, correct? With so many other diseases and ailments. That's right. And there's a lot of companies working on
1: a bunch of diseases and ailments, but I would argue that they're working on it as if they were Lotus Corporation instead of Microsoft Corporation, right? They're focused on just a disease. If you're only interested in writing a spreadsheet, you only learn about spreadsheets. And you don't learn the fundamental foundation elements that are critical in many different applications, like word processors, like presentation software, like databases, like whatever. You're making a bunch of money off of one disease like cancer, and you haven't learned something about gene and cell therapy, the fundamental component architecture of this that allows you to have a whole bunch of intellectual property, a whole bunch of discoveries, inventions, patents, know-how that you can mix and match to cure many different diseases. But what you're saying is absolutely true, and it's at the core of the business model, and the whole corporate culture of AGT, and that is that we focus on the tools and components, the operating system as you might think of it in computers, the iPhone of disease apps, and trying to build as much functionality as we can in there to make it easier and easier to cure diseases on top of that platform, which delivers a lot of functionality that you need to deliver the right gene into the right cell in the right quantity. Safely and specifically enough that you get a powerful, powerful drug with very little side effects that can bring out a cure for something that was formerly completely incurable from old drug development technologies. That is the mission of AGT. Now, curing HIV is a proof of that platform, exactly like what you're alluding to. And in fact, HIV is just a chronic viral infection. So many of the patents that allow us to isolate the right T cell stimulate it, modify it efficiently, and culture it up so that it can clear a chronic viral infection from your body, in this case, HIV, could be applied to other chronic viral infections. How about HTLV? There's 20 million people in the Far East infected with a virus that if it rebounds in their 60s at a high level, it causes an incurable T-cell lymphoma. In other words, they die. One in 20 people dies in their 60s from that virus in the Far East that has it. And we could go ahead and figure out in their 50s which ones are on that trajectory. We might be able to bring out a gene therapy, a cell therapy cure that's exactly parallel to HIV. And it just changes it out to HIV T-cell for an HTLV T-cell. You have them. We modify those so that they're better than fighting the virus. And it never rebounds and causes that T-cell lymphoma. And so we could save millions of lives with that product And it's 80% done because we've already done it for HIV. But hepatitis B falls into that, herpes, human papillomavirus, Epstein-Var, CMV. There are a lot of chronic viral infections that come back as painful, painful comorbidities. Like herpes comes back as shingles. Shingles is really painful. We could make a cure for that. We could make a cure for that chronic viral infection that would control it at a level for your entire life where you wouldn't be subject to any of the problems of it rebounding. You know, these aren't sure bets, but it's way easier when you're starting 80% done because you've done all of the technology that you need that fits together. And the only thing you need to do is isolate a different T cell and do a slightly different modification to it. And you have a shot on goal in a chronic viral infection. That's the power of the platform. When I started in this business, and I think this is what some of the most important stuff that we just cover in another podcast someday is what I learned about business economics, and financing in my journey through AGT and gene and cell therapy. And I'll just give you a little teaser for that. But everybody told me when I came into this, I immediately said to Roscoe Brady, we want to become the Microsoft of this industry, because I saw this as the software revolution for the next hundred years. How do you modify the software of the organic computer, the human cell for better health? And if you want to dominate that software development. If you want to be the biggest player in that, and Microsoft's as big or almost as big as Apple, remember, what you want to be is the Microsoft of this industry. You want to have a robust set of tools and reusable components and test benches that make you the most efficient software developer on earth with a platform that you have internally called an operating system. And part of the model that I'm pursuing is then we can select areas like HIV cancer, things that we want to pursue, but we can share this platform with the world and they can go out and cure 7,000 monogenic diseases that we don't have time for, or infectious diseases that we don't have time for, or cancers that can leverage parts of our platform because we have an amazing immuno-oncology asset that I think might realize my dream of sending radiation and chemotherapy the way of bloodletting and leeches In epithelial solid tumors, which is breast, prostate, lung, liver, colon, kidney, ovarian, pancreatic, head and neck, and skin cancers. I mean, these are the most deadly cancers that are out there. 900 Americans die of those cancers every day. So these are huge. And I think we've got something where we could, with a gene therapeutic, light up the cancer in a way where your natural immune system will just chew it away. And you don't need surgery because we use the cancer itself to cause an immune reaction in your body that clears not just the cancer that we treated, but any cancer that we didn't find. because your immune system will rise up and clear it from the places that we lit up, but also the places that we didn't light up because they're in an activated state and they find the secondary tumors and metastases that we may not have treated, but it can melt those away as well. So this is the power of all of this platform that you're alluding to is that we have components that go across the spectrum of infectious disease, monogenic disease, and cancer. And we have programs that we can bring out on all three of those platforms that can be examples, improve the platform, and that we could then use our model to leverage the entire scientific community. Anybody who has knowledge on a specific disease would be able to partner with us, use our tool set, and have a shot on goal on that disease Starting from a place where they had all these tools and components that we had developed that were so valuable in our own work. And what would that be like? It'd be like the difference between having to invent a cell phone or having to write an app on the iOS. That's the point. If we supply that tool, that foundation that's common in so many different applications, we can accelerate the entire industry. And that's another dream that I have. And that's another thing that I intentionally put into the AGT business model from day one so that we could be the long-term player in this industry. So curing HIV is a proof of concept that HIV can be cured, but it's a proof of concept as well that this platform can work and that this is a model that was absent from drug development before a guy who grew up in Silicon Valley technologies, had a career there, brought this to biotech. I don't see other companies that are leveraging this idea. They're starting to talk about platforms, but frequently, you know what they're talking about? Viruses. What are viruses? Viruses can be carved out and emptied out so that they are empty shells that can deliver any software to the body, any genetic construct to the body that the scientist wants to deliver. Is that a platform? No. It's just something. The virus itself is just something that holds the software. What does that sound like? Paper tape and punch cards. And I would argue with you that this software revolution is at the paper tape and punch card days. But diskettes are coming, CDs, DVDs, thumb drives, and it may be possible one day to deliver uh, curative and therapies that improve your life over the internet one day. You may have something personal at your home that will generate a small amount of virus that you can just breathe in or whatever, and that will cure what ails you. I mean, the future's endless. And so, We modeled this company after the dominant force in the last computer software revolution. And I would argue that was Microsoft. You might say it was Apple, but Apple is a hardware platform with a proprietary software operating system. But Microsoft is this more general case. It is really much more software. And I think that's what AGT will be at first.
0: Yeah, and I find it so interesting, the software medical How everything bridges and is so equal. So, essentially, to just boil this down and correct me if I'm wrong, but in layman's terms, we're the hardware. We're running the program that's inside of us, and like all of us, our cell phones will get updates. We don't even know what problems there sometimes, or we know. Wow, my phone keeps crashing. So we get the update, and it puts the patch in, fixes the problem. AGT American Gene Technologies is creating the patch that can solve HIV and so many other things. And you're just at the beginning. So this is amazing, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Yeah, no, my pleasure. What we're doing is we're creating a platform that does a lot of the heavy lifting of delivering the things that knowledgeable people in disease know need to be modified in the body to get a beneficial health effect. And the parallels between software and the new biotech I think is tremendous. And we're trying to be a leader in that. And we're trying to play the long game so that we can stay a leader in it, but also to make the maximum contribution that we can to humankind by finding the most efficient way to bring this power to as many people as quickly as possible. And I think that the more that we get a chance to prove that, and this human trial is the first opportunity to set a really important stake in the ground to record a really important data point. Then we'll go on to more and more innovation. We'll build the ms that we've created into Windows and then into Windows 7 and 8 and 10 or the iOS one day where it's so simple to cure a disease, it's like writing an app. And that's the dream of AGT. And I think we've taken a footstep along that journey.
0: That's awesome, my friend. And I just, I'm glad you're at the helm of this ship because this kind of revolutionary technology are bought and buried. And then their work never gets to the world because like companies make too much money on treating the symptoms, not solving the problem. So a lot of pharmaceutical companies, we know they don't try to cure anything. They just try to make it a little better each iteration. Each new pill that comes out is a little bit better than the last. So you keep buying billions and trillions of dollars of pills, Mm -hmm. but this could essentially be a cure for so many things Mm -hmm. and help so many people. So thank you, Jeff. I really mean it. And a guy, I don't know if you know this about me, but I actually had a tumor and it kept coming back and I had to go through radiation. Mm -hmm. So the radiation I went through was not chemo. I didn't have chemotherapy with it. And that was brutal. So when I hear people going through radiation and chemotherapy, man, I can't understand it, but I just have an idea of how bad that must be. And people who are taking these drugs that are essentially poisoning them to kill bad things, but it's also killing good things. So people who are on HIV, they're taking pills every day that cause side effects. People who are taking pills for anything, there's always a side effect. Mm -hmm. And God's going to be able to use you to lead this company to eliminate this because you're actually just saying, click, cut, paste, boom, you guys are patched up. So this is exciting. Now, listen, I've had a great time and I like your idea coming back and talking about the business aspect in another episode, but is there anything fundamental from your past, from where AGT is today that we missed, that we need to cover, and then we're going to transition to how can people get a hold of you and where's AGT? We kind of know where you're going in the future, but what can we do to help you get there? Well,
1: this is a revolution in medicine. So one of the things that will maybe come out in our next podcast is how does the status quo react to a revolution even when it's a positive revolution? And this is the whole idea of human nature is it feels very threatened by disruption and it reacts instead of embracing. So the more people that understand where it is that we're trying to go, the more likely it is that this will be embraced. The reason that the graphic user interface took so long to get out to everybody and to bring the benefits to everybody was that all of the traditional industry, it may not have been out of malice that they were messaging all sorts of negative things about the graphic user interface and about Apple. It may have been just a knee-jerk reaction that you know they didn't understand this thing and they saw it as a threat and they didn't think it through and they didn't understand how it could actually increase their business over time by selling more computers. And so there was this chorus of stuff that just naturally got in the way of adoption. And that slowed it for everybody. So revolutions need all of society to think about the idea. And so how can you help me? You can get on our website and get the newsletter and see what we're doing. And you can watch the videos where I talk about a lot of this stuff. I've been very open about my mission and about my vision for the future. And you can decide whether it's something that you believe in personally. And that would make you part of the revolution. You don't have to do anything in particular. You don't have to be part of the small team that's in here. We have a very extended AGT family of folks that are helping to support everything that we're doing sometimes just by telling their friends about it. You know, that's how good ideas spread. You tell two people and they tell two people, and then suddenly it becomes a something that's acceptable out there in society right about the time that we deliver it. And that will help it get out faster. So, you know, that's how you guys can enable what I think is a revolution. That's how everybody who's listening to this podcast can, would be just to get in there and find out about it. And yeah, if it's not for you, no problem. But there has been a lot of resistance i've seen this and that'll be the next podcast i'm going to tell you about my 12 year journey through agt but i can tell you that not only has there been a lot of skepticism and actively so and inability to understand it or maybe an unwillingness to understand it or a lack of time to understand it and a phenomena where even pharma companies aren't thinking in my mind remember pharma companies are successful. So I can't argue with their success. But what I believe is that they could be much bigger. One of the dirty little secrets about gene and cell therapy is that drugs aren't going to be a trillion-dollar market in the future like they are today. They're going to be a $10 trillion business. So there's lots of opportunity for them to pursue their goals of shareholder value maximization. They shouldn't be scared of gene and cell therapy. They should be thinking about how do they Embrace it in a way where they can be part of the value chain that delivers this out to that $10 trillion audience and that they could grow within that. But that's not their reaction. What they see is that it's not like the old drug development doesn't fit their models. They don't have internal expertise. They don't have an organization that has the flexibility to sort of change their business model and turn the battleship to embrace it. But I've seen this before as well. Because when I was at Apple, The number one computer company on earth was IBM, and they sold mainframes for a business. And the number two was Burroughs. And then there was Sperry Univac and Control Data Corporation and the GE Mainframe Division. And RCA even had a mainframe division. They're all gone. And I mean 100%. IBM's still here, but they don't sell mainframes for a living. They install PCs and they maintain them and they get software for them and security and consulting and systems and architecture and server farms. And they are still big blue, the name you can trust if, you know, you have to put computing in a fortune 500 company, that's where they make their business, but they don't sell mainframes anymore. But I'll tell you, when I was at Apple, they had, I don't know if I'd call it disdain, but let's say that they were naive or even, you know, sort of ignorant of the parameters and the changing model of computing that was becoming obvious to us at Apple. And many of them failed completely because they weren't like IBM. They didn't have a Lou Gershon at the helm who was willing to go tell the executives and the board of directors that they had to change totally in order to be alive after the computer revolution. That was inevitable in his view. Somebody at Burroughs failed to do that. Somebody at Sperry University failed to do that. Somebody at DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation. Ken Olson was famous for saying, nobody will ever want a computer in their house, right? That's crazy, right? I know, it's crazy. But, you know, that's the point. It's like, look, it has to do with being intellectually curious. It has to do with taking the meeting. It has to do with learning what somebody else sees and eval- actually honestly and openly evaluating that and saying, Hmm. What part of that rings true and how could it impact me and how could it impact my business? And really, really smart players will stay alive longer because they can adapt. But organizations are like organisms. If they either adapt, migrate, or die, nature will change. Lots of things will be revealed out of nature that will be powerful things that will move industries and technologies forward. But organizations may not be able to adapt. Or they may refuse to adapt. And this is the thing about human nature that I said. Human nature can block all of this input from nature that scientists are showing us, that technologists are showing us, that visionaries are showing us. And it can be existential. It can be deadly. It's been deadly before. And I frequently say pharma companies are going to have to realize that gene and cell therapy is bigger than the old pharmaceutical market. And that means that adapt, migrate, or die. Just like the mainframe computer companies of the 80s that dominated, and I mean dominated computing.
0: Oh, yeah. Nobody ever thought they'd be gone. They were the 900-pound gorilla, and they'd make fun of people, but they're gone. They're gone because they didn't look ahead. That S-patent curve of innovation, they never thought it was real, and they just let it go. Yeah. They couldn't figure out a way to action
1: it. You know, it became something that destroyed their position or deteriorated their position instead of something that they could utilize to enhance their economic activity, their commercial activity, their growth, and their longevity. But it's natural, right? Remember, if you looked inside a hundred thousand person organization, what you'd see is a bunch of tiny cells living in cubes that have learned to do things a certain way. And the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. Unless somebody at the top is like, oh my gosh, we need to embrace this thing. And somehow pushes that through the whole organization. And I'm telling you that what Lou Gershon did was superhuman anyway, to get IBM to go ahead and retool itself in that way. I mean, it seems impossible when you think about the situation that he walked into, but it's a great Harvard B-School case. It's probably a B-School case at every good business school across the land, but it you know had an example in it that... I think pharma company executives may relive that they would be smart to go back to their MBA program and pull out that case and say, what did Lou Gershon see and what did he do that we may not be seeing and we may not be doing and that could make us the boroughs of this industry instead of the IBM of this industry? And I think it's that big. I think gene and cell therapy is that big. It's that powerful and it's going to you know, be an absolute deluge. There's a drip, drip, drip of miracle cures coming out already. I told you already, a already. already, blindness that's cured, a spinal muscular disease that cripples people is cured, bubble boy disease is cured, two incurable forms of leukemia are cured. There's things on the horizon for hemophilia, beta thalassemia, sickle cell anemia. These things are all looking like they're going to come to the forefront. That drip, drip, drip will come, turn into a steady stream. The steady stream will turn into a deluge and then the dam will break. <laughs> And, you know, that's going to be the future of this. The same thing that happened with computers and software and the internet and IT and apps is coming to biotech. Biotech is now no longer big bio, small tech. It's small bio, big tech, because a lot of the stuff that we learned about software, I think, applies to this new industry. And this is all going to be leveraged for not just an evolution of pharmaceuticals, a revolution in pharmaceuticals.
0: Man, well, thank you so much, Jeff, for being here today. It's been fun. It's been intellectually stimulating. I'm excited about the future, not just for your company, but for all of us. To the listeners, this episode, you know, it's got a lot of content, a lot of techie stuff, but listen to the episode, check out Jeff's website, check out what they're doing, sign up for that newsletter, kind of get ahead of the curve in what's coming out. And like Jeff, we said, let's do it. Let's do another episode down the road. We'll do updates on what's going on with AGT. We'll talk about the 12-year journey in the business side. And we'll even talk about the dangers of the tech if this gets in the wrong hands. Because while you could use it for good, there's scumbags out there that could use it for very bad things. Mm-hmm. So we got to make sure we balance this out, right? Yeah. But um, is there anything that we've missed before we go? Our website is
1: Gene. So, American with the N and Gene, G E N E, dot com. You can get to everything there, you know, all our social media. We post things on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook all the time. We have lots of ways for you to stay in touch with us. I recommend that you just sign up for the newsletter. There's a link in the upper right hand corner of just about every page. You click on that and put in your email, and you can get off the list anytime you want. But while you're on it, you'll get our newsletters, which come out kind of once a quarter, sometimes more often if we have news. Stay in touch. If this excites you, it'd be wonderful to have you as part of our extended AGT family. So that'd be the only thing that, you know, sort of I'd add to what we said. And then I'd love to come back again. And I think there's a lot of interesting things that have happened over the last 12 years that I've learned a lot from. And you meet me today at probably the most dramatic time in my life, which is we're on the eve of testing a cure for HIV that wouldn't just affect potentially 1.1 million people in the United States and 37 million people globally, but it may be a proof of concept for this whole platform idea, and it may be the thing that brings in enough sustainable capital that we can widen out Mm -hmm. our therapeutic pipeline to dozens of drugs, and it could also empower this amazing technology that we found. For treating epithelial solid tumors. And so, boy, I mean, everything is riding right now on the spin of this roulette wheel that we're going into this clinical trial. So it's a very dramatic moment and it makes a great story and arc up to it, of course, is very interesting by itself. So maybe one day we can get back together and talk about that and make that the focus.
0: Ah, That'll be wonderful. So thank you again, Jeff, to be here today. You're truly a remarkable guy. I look forward to continuing our friendship and getting together for another episode. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll put links in the show notes to how you can get in touch with Jeff. And if you're thinking about this, if you're thinking about the deep purpose of life and where did mankind start, humankind, again, don't take offense to that. I'm just using the proper English. Man, reach out to me, reach out to Jeff, but that's it. Like our slogan says, don't just listen to this great information, but do it, repeat it, and have a great life. We love you. This is David Pasquale with the Remarkable People Podcast. Go out there and do something with your life. Jeff, thank you for doing something and making our lives so much better, my friend. Thanks, David. All right, everybody have a great day and we'll see you in the next episode. The Remarkable People Podcast. Check it
1: out. remarkable people podcast listen do repeat for life